Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina Thursday morning, January 25th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. An action-packed show in store today. Um, we don't have a sports report. What do you mean? <laughs> he sounded, he acted surprised. Well, do you, you have organized any, the majority of it? Do you have any clue what we do here? Are you involved in the planning at all there, Josh? Well, I, I didn't know. I don't know what that means. Maybe some guy with a paintball gun is going to run through the studio at some point. A paintball gun. <laughs> that, paintball. That, that would I be wouldn't jam-packed. consider having, you mean jam-packed show. Okay. Not action-packed show. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference in jam-packed and action-packed? I don't know. I'd imagine one of our guests calls in and starts swearing, and I have to dump them before they do that. You know, I have to be a, have my hand on the trigger yeah, type situation. That would be action-packed? Yeah. yeah. So had, like, Keep do, me on it. Doing your job. Yeah. That's action-packed. Jam-packed <laughs> is just a lot of people trying to get on in a, in a, in a, 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 it's a jam say, show. Well, I don't want to say a brief period of time. Four hours is certainly not a brief period uh, in time. <laughs> do have one sports story. Um, I mean, the Gamecocks whipped the Blue Blood in basketball two nights ago, right? So... Mm-hmm. The Lady Gamecocks and the LSU defending national champion LSU Tigers play tonight. I think um, they take center stage, and um, and the you'll get an opportunity, you sports fans, you Josh, you'll get an opportunity to watch women playing college basketball that will eventually go to the WNBA and make hundreds of dollars playing <laughs> professional basketball. <laughs> Rev knew I was about to, <laughs> yeah. to say that. Um, <laughs> Two of the better, well, maybe two of the best. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the two best, the defending national champion. And um, and give Dawn credit. It's hard for me to give Dawn credit, but give Dawn credit. She has recruited at the highest level any coach in the history of South Carolina ever has. I mean, it's a little bit like Kentucky in men's basketball or North Carolina in men's basketball. Who are the top 10 female basketball players in America? Let's go get half of them. And let's let, you know, uh, LSU get one or two or three. UConn is kind of on the, um, it's kind of interesting. UConn may be on the downslide. Uh, Gino Ariema won, what, nine national championships, 10, something uh, there about. Um, here's an interesting question I'll pose. Uh, I mean, I know the answer to me, but but I've debated Gamecock and Tiger fans about this. Well, the Gamecock fans would have a different opinion than the Tiger fans. Is women's basketball, I mean, we know that football is king around here. We know that men's basketball is, by and large, the second most important sport at Clemson or South Carolina. At South Carolina is the third most important sport, college baseball or women's basketball. I mean, we know it's college oh. baseball at Clemson. Right. But at, at USC, is it? I mean, obviously, football's king. Men's basketball is second. Yeah. Is women's basketball Ooh. or college baseball third what a question in columbia i mean i know what it is for me right it's men's baseball but i got to accept the reality um when you go to the colonial life arena and the gamecocks are playing kentucky and it's sold out you know what it looks like when the lady gamecocks play so they sell that joint out about every night i mean it's full crazy now it's five bucks a ticket and they lose about six billion dollars in women's basketball i mean they're real good but it's a um it's a it's a net drag on the bottom line in the USC athletic department. Um, but at USC, as a Gamecock fan, are you more interested in success on the baseball diamond or success in women's basketball? Because the media is trying to force feed women's basketball to the public. I mean, Title IX and women's rights and 
you know, equality and inclusion and all these other symbolisms or, or, or objects of symbolism. I mean, they're trying to push women's basketball to raise its, I don't want to say credibility, raise its, um, uh, make it more relevant. I mean, they're trying Which is funny really to me hard. because the other half of the well, time, they, can, the question. they can't figure out if a, what a woman is, but that's a whole yeah, other story. Yeah, in women's basketball. Right. I mean, I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't like to give Tiger fans advice, but if I were Clemson, I mean, I'd go find me some six five really good high school players, and I would say, hey, we identify as women. I'd show up in Colonial Life Arena, arena and I'd beat Don Staley's Lady Game Cocked by 40, and I'd go back home. I mean, I, you, you know, know it's going to happen. I'd find at me some six five really good high school basketball players because six five really good high school basketball players would kill Don Staley's Lady Game Cocks by 30 or 40 points. I mean, there's good as there is in women's basketball. But high school basketball, six five good high school basketball players would just mop the floor with the uh, with the Lady Gamecocks or LSU or UConn or whomever, Stanford, Notre Dame. Give me another decent women's program. It's kind of weird that I know the other decent. I should be ashamed of that. That I actually know some of the other good women's basketball programs. <laughs> You're such a well-rounded well, you get, individual. You get caught up in the crossfire, Rip. Really. <laughs> you don't have any choice. You get caught up in the crossfire. And if you're a USC fan, they crammed that women's basketball down down your throat. You got no choice but to kind of know what's going on. That they, they made a decision as a Gamecock fan, you're going to know what's going on with women's basketball. So answer the question. Oh. Would you rather succeed at men's baseball or women's basketball? Would you rather win a college world series or another? I mean, they're already two time national champions, or another women's basketball championship. I'm on the record. Men's baseball. Yeah, baseball by for a me, mile. No doubt. Men's baseball by a mile. Um, but I get it. I mean, I get this, um, this, this, this new woke culture and society we live in and they want us to like what they want us to like, not particularly, uh, what we want ourselves to like. There, there's something happening in the GOP and it's kind of competing forces that there's a narrative that what well, we segue quick. Deal. There's a narrative in the media that Trump underperformed in New Hampshire. There's a narrative in the media that Nikki overperformed in New Hampshire. Those are true. I've been looking at the data. Nikki overperformed the 38, 39, 40% prediction that the majority of pollsters said she'd get. Trump was at 57, 58. I mean, I saw an outlier had him at 60, but most of the polls I saw him had him at 57, 58. He's going to end up at about 54, 55. Somewhere there, about Nikki ends up at about forty-three ish. Um, but that, so so that's an underperformance of three or four for Trump, and and I guess an overperformance of three or four for Governor Haley. And the national media tried for a day or two to say, I mean, the race is flipped. I mean, we've got a race now; it's on. I mean, they're going to South Carolina. The people of of good old uh, red state South Carolina will come to their senses. They'll vote for their one of one of their kindred spirits. Um, but then yesterday, something else began to happen. Um, some of the donors, some of the big donors began to make public their opinion about what should happen, and they're convincing. I mean, somebody used a Kenny Rogers analogy. I don't know if you saw this or not. No one to hold them, no one to fold oh, I them. I missed that one. No one to walk away, no one to run. And said so there's a lot of beauty in politics and no one to walk away. I mean, the guy that founded LinkedIn is a big, big donor to Nikki Haley's campaign, and he made it known publicly yesterday, I think on CNBC or Bloomberg, that he had no more money. To, uh, to give to, to Governor Haley, that the writing's on the wall. Um, he's questioning whether she should come 
to South Carolina. So for a day or two, the media pitched the narrative of we've got a race. We've got a race. And all of a sudden, the donors began, I don't know if we do or not. I don't know if we do or not. Um, I thought about this yesterday, and, and, and a couple of friends of mine, I mean, Andre Bauer will be on our show at 830. Andre's on the steering committee. Andre's a big supporter of Donald Trump. Andre ran against Nikki Haley in the 2010 gubernatorial race. Andre and I were texting a bit two days ago and, um, you know, talking about the prospects of what may happen in South Carolina. And Andre, I mean, he kind of hopes it plays out. You know, just um, write your own political obituary. You're in charge of your political fate and future, so write your own political obituary in South Carolina. I want to get Drew McKissick's opinion about what to expect here. The the takeaway from New Hampshire, I mean, if I'm Trump and I'm working for Trump, and I've not heard them say this, Trump needs better sound bites. I mean, he needs better surrogates. He needs people saying, I, I understand Trump doesn't like anybody speaking for himself. But if I were speaking for Trump, I mean, if, if, if I was on the steering committee again this year, the first thing I would have said the day after New Hampshire, because we've done some of the digging now, we know the analytics. What we've seen entrance polls, exit polls, we got real data. There weren't enough Democrats in New Hampshire voting in the Republican primary to put Nikki Haley in a, in a, in a higher position of relevancy. But I mean, that's what it really boils down to. How many Democrats voted in the Republican primary? I don't know. More than normal. Many more than normal. The media narrative tried to say, well, this is all about independence. And Nikki won the independence 60-40, and that's where Trump has, has trouble. There may be some merit to that. I don't know. I mean, we'll find out in due time. But the reason Nikki overperformed in New Hampshire is Democrats voted in the Republican primary. And I just think that the... The primary process is not necessarily an election. It's a selection. The Republican voters are selecting their nominee. The Democrats are selecting their nominee. And I would just rather see it. I mean, I, I was always opposed to closed primaries. I mean, I always felt you, I mean, that, that's, that's a way to shut people out. I mean, you better be careful there. So you're not one of us. You can't vote in our primary. I mean, I'd like it to be welcoming and inviting. But that's manipulating. But I mean, that's not welcoming. it. There's a difference in allowing a free-minded independent that may like a Democrat in one race and a Republican in another race. I, I, I respect that. I mean, I respect that Josh is a voter, and Josh goes to the poll, and Josh wants to vote for the Democrat running for sheriff because he thinks he's a good dude and he'll do a good job. And he wants for, to vote for the Republican running for governor because he thinks he'll do a, a good job. I've always been careful to be so closed-minded about primaries. Let's not exclude, I mean, Big Ten. Uh, politics is about addition. Let's not close these folks off and not let them participate. But in New Hampshire, it's somewhat of a game. I mean, it's a manipulated process. And Sununu and Haley actively engaged Democrats that they thought they could get to cross over. Um, I, I guess, you know, you do some polling. Uh, do you hate Trump? Yeah. Are you a Democrat? Yeah. Uh, will you vote for Haley in the primary? It might. The media celebrates and acts like this is to Haley's benefit when they interview Dave Baker. Dave Baker, who did you vote for? I voted for Nikki Haley. Who will you vote for in a general if Donald Trump is the nominee? Oh, I'll vote for Biden. That person's a Biden voter. I mean, they're not an independent. 
That's the point I'm trying to make. And, and if, if Nikki Haley was the nominee, that's sure. the question. If, so you voted for her in the primary, and if you vote for her, will you vote for her again in the general? They're oh, no. voting for Biden. Right. I mean, they're voting for Biden. So, so the Democrats are what allowed Nikki to overperform in New Hampshire, but more than anything, the system allowed that. Right. And and, and we're, getting, we're, we're getting muddled messages. Donald Trump is dominating the Republican primary with Republican voters. I mean, in the, in the, in the, in the truest sense as Republicans, and I'm talking about conservative believing Republicans go to the poll, cast a ballot. They're overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly in support of Donald Trump. But these, these weird got a caucus and got a primary and you got the primary with independence and you can change your registration that day when you show up at the poll. Uh, once again, I'm conflicted because I don't like to be closed-minded. I don't like to be welcoming. I do believe in the big tent. I do believe in selling your ideas to the masses and convincing more and more people that we have things in common. You, you have more things in common with this party than you think you do. Come aboard. I mean, join join the grand old party. I mean, that, but, but again, I mean, philosophically, I'm probably more of a parliamentarian. I mean, I don't like the duopoly anymore. I, I, I've told Reb, if I want to go get a hamburger at 12 today, I got a million choices. If I want to go buy a sweatshirt today, I got a hundred choices. If I want to pick the president of the United States, I got two choices. I got to be a Republican or a Democrat. I kind of like the parliamentary version of government because Josh has to lead a faction and Rev has to leave a faction and you got to kind of collaborate and find some common ground. And uh, some things never get done because you can't find common ground. Good. Some things don't need to be done. Some other things can get done because Josh, Rev and Ken are able to find some common ground. I just think the duopoly has failed America. And New Hampshire has failed the Republican primary, or the, excuse me, the Republican process of picking of picking a president. And I'd like to see us clean that up in some way, shape, or form. Um, and maybe it took a day for the donors to realize what happened in New Hampshire. I mean, that, that's kind of my, you know, the donors don't go to bed at night worrying about. I mean, they, they've got. If, if you're a billionaire, you're worried about business. I mean, you're probably concentrating and focusing on on business and how the companies and investments look. I mean, you're thinking about the president because that's an important part of your life. I mean, policy comes out of the White House, uh, tax policy, regulated, regular, uh, regulatory policy. But, but I believe that the reason the donors didn't bail that night is they didn't understand the data. But now that the data has been explained to them and the Haley campaign calls or the, the political action committee for the Haley campaign calls and says, hey, you, you gave us a quarter of a million last time. Can we count you in for a quarter of a million this time? The donor probably says, hey, I looked at the data. I've done some extrapolating, and it looks to me like the only reason Nikki did as well in New Hampshire as she did is a bunch of Democrats voted for her. I don't know if that's a sustainable model. Count me out for the next quarter million. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. In our jam-packed show today, <laughs> Reggie Armstrong at 705, John Deckard about 725, Drew McKissick, at 8.05, Andre Bauer at 8.30, and I think we've got uh, Jared Halpern at about 9.05. So uh, more of others, less of me. Let's go to the vault. <laughs> there you go. Here's Jim in Florence. Hey, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So last night, the uh, South Carolina Democrats decided to use Roger Kirby to uh, give the counter to the state of the state address by the governor. Um, obviously, Roger Kirby is one of those guys. He's incredibly great guy. He just has horrible politics. And I can't help but wonder, are the Democrats seeing something 
that no one's really talking about and how they're struggling with with the white vote. And that's why they pick Roger Kirby, um, because as we continue to see the Democrat Party in South Carolina <clears throat> become a more primarily black party um, are in recognizing that struggle. Is that why they picked Roger? I mean, are they recognizing something? Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. I don't, I don't know that. I mean, I talked to Roger Sunday. I mean, he let me know that he was doing that. I mean, I'm proud for Roger. Roger's been a friend of mine all my life. Mr. LaRue was a, a friend of my dad. So I know the family. We go way, way back. And you guys know enough about me to know that friendship trumps political alliances and allegiances. Um, yes. I mean, I think there's something kicking with the, with the Democrat party across the country with, um, I mean, I don't want to call it white flight, but, uh, will the last white Democrat in the South turn the light off, please? Uh, Yancey McGill comes to mind. Vincent Shaheen, um, comes to mind. It's hard for a white to win in predominantly democratic African-American districts. It just is. I mean, it's, um, we're all a little bit, uh, native's not the right word, but we're all a little bit, we're more likely to vote for people who look like us. I mean, that's just human nature. I'm sorry. Call me whatever you'd like to call me, shallow-minded, racist, bigoted, uh, you know, been called worse. Um, but, I mean, yeah, human beings tend to vote for people who look like they do, sound like they do, believe what they do, act like they do. And there's no denying the the national data and I would imagine, I mean, I'm not dug into this, Jim, like I probably would have if I were in the state house, if I understood some of the demographics. I just know when I was there, Vincent Shaheen was always nervous. Yancey McGill was always nervous. What are you nervous about the next election? Why? Because I'm in a heavily African-American district and I'm a white guy. And I'm worried about a, a you know, an African-American Democrat running against me and quote unquote, his people voting for him and my people voting for me. I'm sorry, guys. I mean, I know that's politically incorrect. It's a little crass, but it's true. And um, and that's just the nature of the business. Um, I had two texts last night, one supporting what Roger said, one not caring much for what, for what Roger said. But Roger and I talked Sunday, and I've told Democrats this. I mean, maybe I shouldn't, but I don't have any loyalty to the party. I mean, I'm not paid by the party to be a, a surrogate or an ad agency, but I've told Democrats that the Trump voter – by and large, is not motivated by conservative ideology. I mean, we talked a lot yesterday about political destabilization and political disruption and, you know, who are the likely Trump voters? Who are the most uh, intense America First supporters? It's largely white rural Americans. I mean, the deindustrialization of the Midwest, um, some of the issues the South has dealt with, because um, you had kind of a um, – the jobs left the, the, the union states in the Midwest to come south to the right-to-work states, right? I mean, the Midwest struggled with employment. Uh, we've had a mass migration of population because we've had a mass migration of jobs. In all honesty, um, take weather out of the equation. But all of a sudden, the right-to-work states couldn't compete with Malaysia or China or some of these, um, some of these countries that we have allowed to normalize some of the um, – some of the anti-worker sentiment. I mean, let's be honest. Communist countries aren't friendly to workers. Never have been, never will be. Um, so there's always been this belief that I have that, um, and you guys have heard me say this, the biggest mistake Republicans can make is what? Believing Trump voters are Republican voters. They're not. They're Trump voters. Can they become 
Republican voters over the long haul? Of course they can. You, you've got to offer them a vision, a platform, an agenda that they find in their best interest. The, the majority of people vote for the party who they believe genuinely cares about their best interest or the party that markets a belief that they are interested in their financial, uh, personal well-being, um, your, your, your priorities kind of align with theirs, your interests kind of align with theirs, your beliefs kind of align with theirs. But, yes, I mean, long story short, I don't think there's any question that the state Democrat Party put Roger Kirby as their, um, you know, the, the, the response to the state of the state address given by Governor McMaster, there's no doubt that that came into play. Now, is, is it Roger's turn? I don't know how the caucus does it. I don't have any idea how they pick and choose who does what, but it stands to reason. And if I were running the DNC, I would advise South Carolina, find a white Democrat and let him do the response because we're having enormous leakage or shrinkage of, um, of whites and the Democrat Party. It's kind of morphing into that. I mean, it's almost like America has become a, a political situation where one race votes for one party and the other race votes for, for the other party. It's not monolith, but it's not anywhere near what we talk about. Some of these subsets, African-Americans, college educated people under the age of 25, um, you know, working class over the age 45 churchgoers, non churchgoers. We do a lot of that. I'm just not as aware. I mean, when, when Robert and I ran, when, when I ran for office and Robert ran the campaign, I mean, I was always, intrigued by the way you break voters down. I'll give you an example, Rev. We advertised on my campaign and some of the regional stations, we advertised on Meet the Press, but we advertised in the first 20-minute segment because okay. more conservatives than not leave after the first 20 minutes to go to church. So if you're buying a spot or an avail on Meet the Press because that's politically inclined, you know, viewers – these people watching Meet the Press are probably more inclined than the people watching the NFL pregame show. You don't advertise on the NFL pregame show because those folks aren't as likely to vote as the people watching Meet the Press. But if you advertise on Meet the Press after 930, the belief is the majority of Republicans are in the car with their families going off to church. I mean, I'm not saying Democrats are heathens. and I'm not saying Republicans will save the world, but there's all this micro-targeting that goes into the analysis of why you do X, Y, or Z. I didn't hear Roger's speech. I mean, I didn't. I, you know, I kind of sort of know what he was going to say. And um, and I, I don't mind saying this. I mean, I'll tell anybody. I advised Roger to consider the Trump voter. I mean, don't 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 speak to the D, to the Democrat base voter. I mean, I understand that's what Democrats do. That's what Republicans do. You got to contrast what what Henry said in his state of the state. I don't know what Henry said. Don't have any idea what Henry said. But, um, but I did tell Roger that if I were him, given that opportunity, I would be inviting toward the Trump voter because I don't think the Trump voter is 100% Republican. I think they're still floating around in the political ether deciding where exactly it is they land. I do believe this. I think the majority of Trump voters think transgenderism and gender dysphoria is a mental illness. I don't think they, they believe minor children should go um without parental consent, have a sex change operation. And I think, by and large, the Trump voter opposes abortion under most circumstances. I mean, I think rape, incest, life of the mother, if you poll Trump voters, 
They say, yeah, I get that. I mean, I, you know, I'd rather not be for that, but I understand the pragmatist in me says that's okay. Um, Jim, long story short, yes, I do believe the reason Roger Kirby gave the rebuttal or the response to Henry's state of the state, he's one of the few white Democrats. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. A jam-packed show in store for you today. Um, a lot of guests, a lot of um, conversations, uh, but we'll always make time for you, our listeners and callers. So we talk a lot about America first and you know why we're for it. You know, and there's a lot of questions about you know how, where where do we go, and especially where do we go after Trump. But right now, you know, to, to me, the focus has to be on on getting him elected because he's he's the guy, right? But are are there things that you worry about? I mean, you're concerned um, yeah. about going forward. Well, I mean, my nature is to be concerned. <laughs> you know, I'm always concerned. <laughs> I've noticed. Um, well, I mean, I, I live a life that requires me to be concerned about a lot of different things. No, I, I worry. I'm concerned that at times it's too much about Trump and too little about a set of ideals. I mean, I think it would be it would be great to find. I mean, let's put Trump and a set of ideals in a blender, and now that comes to perfect smoothie. Good luck with that. You know, good luck. I mean, Trump's tough enough by himself. Um, I think Trump hurt himself a little bit the night of the New Hampshire primary. He didn't. It was petty. I mean, I get it. That's his personality. I understand that. But it's still. I mean, it take it take New Hampshire out of the equation. He's still got to win independence. He's still got to win independence. I don't care how much. You love him. How much you want him to be president? He ain't going to be president unless he gets independence in five states to vote for him. The hundred and fifty thousand people I talk about watching Seinfeld pretty much every single day. My concern with America First is that we get further down this road, and it becomes more and more and more about this unbelievably you Cornish figure in Donald Trump and less about ideals and principles. Um, Newt Gingrich had a contract with America. You can't remember. Newt was a big figure. I mean, Newt was speaker of the House, presidential candidate, won the South Carolina primary, smart guy. I mean, a a very informed politico, has been around uh, a long time, been on the scene a long time. People care what Newt has to say about X, Y, or Z. But you can't think about Newt long without thinking about contract with America. And I, and I think the set of ideals, we've got to be clear about what our ideals are, what our, what our principles are. I'll give an example. I mean, I'm not running for office ever again. I mean, I'm convinced of that. Five years ago, I thought it, but I wasn't convinced of it. I'm convinced now that I, I, I like this. I'm just at a place in my life that that doesn't interest me at all, none whatsoever. But if I were to run for governor, I would run on two ideals, abolish the state income tax, and increase our energy grid capacity faster than anybody in America. That would be my set of ideals. It would be, um, and, and I've told you, Rev, I know the bumper sticker on America First. I'm going to advocate and promote policies that advantage and prosper the American worker, the American family, and the American way of life. That's the bumper sticker. That's the closing line in the stump speech. But I'm concerned that we're not building the, the set of ideals around an agenda. In other words, when Trump gets elected, what are the policies that prosper and advantage the American worker, the American family, the American way of life? I mean, if I were in charge of America first, I would be debating whether or not we should put on the table excluding the first $80,000 of income from any sort of tax. 
payroll included. Income payroll, the first 80 grand a family earns is tax exempt. You keep every penny of it. I love that. Well, I mean, I know it hurts the budget. I understand that it hurts the budget, but who's worried about the budget? <laughs> I mean, if we're going to blow the budget sky high, let's do it on behalf of workers and not corporations. And I'm not saying what Amazon should or should not pay. I don't have any idea what Amazon should pay. Does Amazon depreciate? Yeah. Do they R&D? Yeah. I mean, it's so, so the tax provisions in America allow them to get write-offs based on, on that. I don't think they're criminal enterprises by any stretch of the imagination. But if Amazon can figure out a way to get their tax liability to zero, the American family making 80 grand a year should be able to do the same. And whatever above 80, then some tax applies to that. My concern to your point is that we're not thinking through this. We're, we're defending Trump. We're fighting for Trump. We're valiant in our fight. We know the odds. We know that the media is opposed. Academia is opposed. The donors are opposed. We understand that. So we feel, uh, I think we all feel a little bit heroic. You know, he needs me. I mean, I'm here to fight for Donald Trump. But but what ideals are you fighting for? What, what principles of government are you fighting for? And it concerns me that we're not developing more ideals, more values. I mean, I understand make America great again. Okay, let's make America great again. Bang the gavel. All in favor of that, say aye. But, but, I, th- but I think you can say that it stands for, um, first of all, securing the border. Uh, secondly, drill, baby, drill. I mean, two issues you, you talked about. I mean, that's the minutia. That's the detail. What are the set of ideas? I mean, I understand conceptually. You're right. Secure the border. Empower the American worker. But, but you, you, I mean, I think a president owes it to the American people to get a little more detail. Here's what I'm going to do. I mean, I, I just said, if I were going to run for governor, and maybe somebody steals this idea. Um, it's a good one. I've seen the polls. Um, <laughs> abolish the state income tax and invest in our power grid. Because I'm telling you guys, we are in dangerous waters. Trust me. We are in dire straits when it comes to meeting our energy needs in America. There are some industries considering coming to South Carolina, and we can't look them in the face and be honest with them and say, hey, if you grow at this pace, we can for sure provide dependable and affordable energy. We can't do that. I mean, we've outpaced our – now, a lot of it has to do with the, with the fiasco in Cross. You know, the Scanna, um, Santee Cooper fiasco, that put us behind the eight ball. But, but I think we've got to, as aggressively as any state in America, build an energy grid, create more energy productivity in South Carolina, and that would be my priority. Do you have to do that in conjunction with, with the federal government? Probably. I mean, you're dealing with regulators and nuclear plants and whatnot. I mean, it'd be nuclear, wind, solar, coal. It would be everything imaginable. But I would be the energy governor. And I would abolish the state income tax. I just think that leads to a a better South Carolina. So when Trump walks on a stage and says, make America great again, we all believe there's this, there's this um there's this tragic hero that walks on the stage and he counts on us and it depends on us, and all the other forces are opposed to him. True, one hundred percent accurate. But where's the meat on the bone? And, and I think I'm worried that we're not putting as much meat on the bone as we need to. Let's go to the phone. Matt in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, Matt. Hey, so I got a question. Uh, I've been wrestling with this. Why is it so absurd for Nikki Haley to stay in the race? Why don't we let this play out? 
why don't we let because she obviously thinks in some way that she can win or she knows she can't win but she wants to gauge where she's going to finish in all of this and maybe it sets up like you said or other people have certainly said it's political suicide if she gets demolished in South Carolina so I watched a lot of judicial races and Ken you know about this from being at the state house when judges are running for office we the selection committee kicks out three people and there's some non-vote but everybody garners support and then the two people that aren't going to get it bow out and allow the person to be coronated judge but but why don't we make people vote and see where that all falls out and and now I know that I only had 20 votes of 50 and those kind of things you said it, it's a selection process but don't voters feel better when at least they get to go and push the box and check the box and put, I I did my part. I believe Nikki, I'm not saying I am, but I believe Nikki could be the one. Isn't it, I mean, shouldn't we let that kind of play out? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not opposed to that at all. The, The only concern I have is how much animus you build between, how much dissent you build within the party. Can you, in that period of time, circle the wagons and everybody get behind behind one candidate. I am not a hope. I mean, I want, I want to be clear. I think, I mean, Trump's my guy because I want instability and I want disruption. I, that may be an out-of-the-norm emotion to have, and it may not be in the country's best interest, but it's where I am. Nikki has every right to run as long as she decides to run, and Haley's supporters have every right to give her money for as long as they decide to give her money. Um I, I just try to be honest and say the reason that I think Nikki will continue on is she is ambitious. Imagine this. She's a politician with a big ego. Consultants like getting paid, and donors hate Trump. So it's kind of the perfect recipe for Nikki Haley staying in the race, Dan, probably makes much sense for the good of the of the Republican Party. Sure. My, I think I have the same concern that you do that – the problem is we put all our eggs in the Trump basket, and then if we lose in November, I don't, I, I don't know how this country, I don't know how we come back from that. See, I don't Four put my years. eggs, and, and I want to be clear here because I think we all need to consider this. I mean, I'm not some rocket scientist, but we all need to put our thinking caps on for a second. The loyalty can't be to Trump. We've got, we've got to convince ourselves that this is much bigger than that. That's hard to do because Trump's such a big political figure but this is about destabilizing that's my word this political order that i don't think has been very friendly or kind to the american working class and out of the on the other side of this instability comes you know an america first agenda that genuinely works and 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 legislates on behalf of average everyday americans that's what i'm ambitious for i mean that that's why i don't I try to not focus as much on Trump. That's almost impossible. You know it, and I know it. But but I think long-term, when I have these conversations with other politicos, it's less about Trump and more about some of the party priorities that I think need to be incorporated that relate to America first. Sure. If you get away from Trump, the person, and the personality, and you just look at his policies and what he's done and what he did the four years he was in office— when you tout those things, it's hard for people that are, are, you know, just hate him with all passion. It's hard for them to, if you didn't, if you disassociated the person with what he did, people would be for that. 
but it's his personality that comes in. And I agree with you. It needs to be about a movement and not just the person. Thank you for letting me call. Thank you. Appreciate that. I mean, in the weirdest way imaginable, Trump's a little bit like Jerry Jones. He's just, he's too big. I mean, you know, if Jerry Jones, the owner, fired Jerry Jones, the general manager, the Dallas Cowboys would probably have two or three Super Bowls. But he's all that. He thinks he's all that. He likes being all that. Trump thinks he's all that. He likes being being all that. I, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting phenomenon. And um, in, in some of the judge races, I mean, the, the legislatures don't, the legislators don't like voting for or against a judge. I mean, I presided over two joint sessions where we elected trustees of universities and judges, and the majority were by acclamation. I mean, I would always go to the clerk that morning and say, how many elections are we going to have? I mean, I know how many is on the docket, but how many actual elections are we going to have? And um, and Jackie, Jackie Knotts would always do some of the uh, judicial acclamation. I mean, you know, uh, this judge is confirmed by acclamation. Never have an actual vote. And the majority of people who considered being a judge were told, hey, don't make us vote this time. There's another judgeship coming along, coming along in a year or two, and we'll make sure you're um, kind of teed up to have the upper hand in that race. I've said it a million times, and I'll stand by it. The more policymakers have to vote, the better government is. Policymakers have decided and continue with resolutions and omnibus bills, and we don't meet as committees. I mean, we're doing a little bit better than that. I mean, one of the most egregious things in American politics today is how few votes we actually take. And I'm talking, I ain't, I'm not talking about should we or should we not honor the, the, the women's basketball team from Carolina or the soccer team from Clemson. I'm talking about real votes on real issues that affect real people in real and major ways. Politicians all over America have figured out ways to not vote on some of those sorts of things. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. We think John Decker will be with us in about 10 or 12 minutes. We think. Drew McKissick will be the way we're saying thinking because it's all scheduled. Uh, things happen That's from the time way to we time. Have to it doesn't it. work out the way, the way we, uh, we wished it would. We're, we're talking a lot about, I mean, I'm reading some things on Twitter this morning about advice people are giving to, to Governor Haley. I want to make it crystal clear. I'm talking about what I think is going to happen. And if I were Nikki Haley, I wouldn't risk coming to my home state and losing by 20 percentage points. I just wouldn't. There's no way. A former governor can come to her home state, his home state, and and lose by 20 points and call themselves a viable candidate. Um, I mean, if that's inevitable, maybe she pulls the plug between now and then. I mean, I saw just now, scrolled on Fox News, she's raised a million dollars since Tuesday. Um, That doesn't impress me much. I mean, it just doesn't because I know how the game is played. I understand that candidates have big egos, and consultants convince candidates they can win. Whether the consultant believes the candidate can win or not, they'll convince the candidate because they need to get paid. And if they convince the candidate, the candidate calls the the donor, the donor sends money, and the, the campaign continues. I'm not offended by that. I mean, I'm not bothered by that at all. Um, every dollar we spend, now, now the beauty of Haley's campaign, it's largely funded by Democrats. So in all honesty, the majority of donations made to Nikki Haley's campaign is going to be money we can't send or they can't send to Democrats. You know, the Biden campaign is some of the, the political act. It's just it's very, very unusual what's happening. I didn't say every dollar that Nikki Haley raises is from a Democrat, but we know that a lot of it, the LinkedIn founder is a registered Democrat. 
He is an avowed Biden supporter. He wants to beat Trump. And he said, I'd rather take two shots at him than one. So I'm supporting Nikki Haley. Well, I mean, he's been, uh, Reed Hoffman's his name. He's been her biggest contributor thus far. I mean, he says loudly and proudly, I'm a Democrat. I'm for Biden. I want Biden to be president, but I want to stop Trump. The, the problem, the unspoken uh, biggest issue of the presidential campaign is, I wrote it down this morning, unsupervised mail-in voting. Nobody really knows. But there's a lot of speculation, Rev. I have an opinion. Josh just nodded his head. He has an opinion. You have an opinion. The reality is nobody really knows what happens when unsupervised mail-in balloting or mail-in voting goes back to normal. Does Can Trump win with 75 million votes? Andy McCarthy wrote a big article this morning in the National Review, and you know how much I respect McCarthy's opinion when it comes to legal matters. He needs to stay there because he tried to say that Trump's making the party smaller, and New Hampshire shows that. New Hampshire is quirky. New Hampshire is an outlier. New Hampshire is odd. New Hampshire is not a true reflection of where the GOP is by any stretch of the imagination. It was distorted heavily by how many Democrats, how many independents. Now, you're right. We need independents. But an independent New Hampshire is probably a liberal in about 40 of the uh, the other 50 states in America. But the unknown issue is unsupervised mail-in voting. And in the heart of heart, the David Axelrods of the world, the Barack Obamas of the world, they know it affected. I mean, they know it impacted. They just don't know how much. You believe it impacted enough to sway the election. Josh believes it changed the outcome of the election. I believe it changed the outcome of the election. But some Democrats don't believe that. Some Republicans don't believe that. Andy McCarthy is lecturing to the National Review subscriber that we're crazy to send Trump back out because he's one in one and he makes the party smaller. Well, name a Republican that has ever gotten 75 million votes not named Donald Trump. But how do you argue he's making the party smaller? And he increased his votes from 2016 to 2020. Well, okay, here's a fair. uh, How much of that was unsupervised mail-in voting? What is Trump's real number? I mean, I don't know. You don't know. Don't know. That's the oddity of this election. Nobody really knows how much unsupervised mail-in voting changed or affected or impacted the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. We we all hypothesize. We all have opinions and feelings and and, and what we think might have happened. But do you really believe that Trump increased from 61 to 75 million without contributions from unsupervised mail-in balloting? Or mail-in voting? I mean, that, th- those are the four, three words. Unsupervised, well, four words, mail-in voting. Nobody knows what it looks like in 2024 if we get back to normal. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not past another pandemic. I mean, I'm not past some other iteration of COVID. Uh, I, it wouldn't surprise me a bit in the world if we got to spring or summer and you heard some of the um, bureaucrats in Washington start talking about masks and you know, another variant, and we've got to put, uh, we, we got to consider, you know, people gathering in large places, and, you know, should we go back to voting like we did in 2020? It seemed to work okay. You know, nobody got sick, nobody died, nobody had to stand in line. I mean, I, it wouldn't surprise me a bit in the world if we get to spring or summer, and some of the Democrats, some of the bureaucrats in Washington said, wow, I mean, it really worked 
in 2020. Let's try it again in 2024. I mean, nobody should be surprised if there's an attempt made by some of the Democrats to go down down that road. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. Kid, uh, if somebody pays you probably uh, generational money to run for president, would you? I mean, I would. And I, I think Nikki Haley, she's not spending her money. She has been, she is a hired, she's a hired gun to go out there and cause uh, as much damage as she can do. And as far as that, that Democrats go, they're campaigning against Trump by paying Nikki Haley to say what they want them to say, okay? So I think that's a rigged gig already. And then um, also, remember last year I called in, wait, before the last election, I said, God, the Democrats sure are pretty uh, confident acting for having such a uh, vote in like Biden. Well, they acted us that way again. They're, they're kind of, I believe I heard something between Clyde yesterday when you made it you know, kind of headed that way. They sure seem pretty calm having Biden be their uh, presidential guy. Like, it's almost like the fix is already in again, like you were saying. And the next thing I was going to ask you, get what in the world? So right now, we're, we have Democrats want to send federal troops in to fight Texans who are trying to stop illegal aliens and terrorists, Chinese and Arabs, from coming into the country of Texas. And then you got all these good old boys saying they want to go down there and fight. Well, I don't know about you, but if the federal government comes down there and their tanks and everything else to confront the state national guard and the state national guard, I mean, man, all of that, and you're going to say the reason being because you want to make it easier for terrorists and illegal aliens to get into your country. Man, we got some serious, serious wacky stuff going on, brother. I don't believe again it is a damned accident. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I, we, we touched on that yesterday. Rez asked me twice about it. My understanding of the situation in Texas is the Supreme Court ruled that while litigation is pending, we're not going to allow Texas to dictate its own immigration policy. Immigration is under the auspice of the federal government. Texas is litigating against some of that. I mean, they put up razor wires and barriers and barricades and whatnot. And I understand it. I mean, if I were in Texas, I think Abbott needs to be elected 100 times over. I think he's doing exactly what he should do to protect his people from things the federal government won't enforce. But the Supreme Court said, from what I'm reading, that because there's pending litigation, we're going to let the court speak before we create this clarity. In other words, if the court rules in the federal government's favor, I think Texas can go back to the Supreme Court and, and ask permission to secure its own border because the federal government won't do it. Once again, I'm not a lawyer, but that's my interpretation of what the U.S. Supreme Court um, decided on. I'll go back to Trump and Haley, Josh. Play the music. I mean, we'll take a break here. I think it's as simple as this. I mean, the, can a candidate be controlled or not? I mean, the word we used yesterday was disruption and destabilization, and, and I do those for effect. I mean, I try to say those sorts of words that make you go, damn, I mean, destabilize? I mean, the guy wants to, the nation to become less stable? I want Washington to become destabilized, of course. I mean, I think Washington has gotten too comfortable in its own skin. I think Washington doesn't believe it's held accountable to anybody. So I am for destabilizing Washington. If America becomes less stable as a result of 
as we say in Pamplico, sometimes it just bees like that. Take a break. Back in a few. A little Badlands bumper. Josh is on the money today. Jam-packed hour <laughs> of Wake Up Carolina. Not an action-filled hour, but rather a jam-packed hour of Wake Up Carolina. It begins right now with Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent, and repeat, repeat, repeat offender uh, of appearing on Wake Up Carolina, John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great. Hope you're doing well today. It's been a busy two weeks as far as uh, Election 24 is concerned, uh, with uh, Donald Trump notching two wins. Uh, he is, he's got the momentum, that's for sure. John, what do you make of New Hampshire? I, I would argue that Nikki overperformed a little bit, and that does create a media story that this race is not over yet. But I don't know if fundamentally much has changed. I don't think much has changed either. I mean, she lost by 11 points, uh, and that's pretty significant. Uh, the media, uh, I think, and I'm a part of the media, we, we love a good story. Uh, and uh, a story, if we were writing it, would be one in which uh, this is going down to the wire, Nikki Haley against Donald Trump. But that's not reality. That's fiction. Uh, Nikki Haley uh, really needs to win somewhere. And uh, now, interestingly enough, if you're writing this story, uh, she's now in her home state. The South Carolina primary is upon us. Uh, it's a state that's been kind to Nikki Haley in the past, electing her governor twice. But I don't think it's going to be kind to her as it relates to the New Hampshire Republican primary. But it will extend the primary and allow or force the Republicans to pay attention to that and not a general. We could have the longest general election in the history of the country if they settle this sooner than later. What is the Biden administration strategy? I mean, obviously, being president is invaluable. I mean, that is a great, great benefit when you're running for reelection. But what do we expect the Biden campaign and, and presidency to kind of um, make as its priorities? Ken, they are focused right now on the general election. It's the reason why two very senior White House staffers uh, have already been moved over to the campaign. The White House deputy chief of staff. Uh, has left her position to assume control of the entire campaign. She also, we're talking about Jennifer uh, O'Malley Griffin, she also ran uh, the Biden campaign in 2020, the victorious Biden campaign in 2020. So the president uh, listening to advisors, including uh, former President Barack Obama, in making this personnel move. The Biden campaign presidency will be in Wisconsin um, I think you'll be traveling with the president. I am. Uh, wheels up uh, at 10 o'clock, but I'm on my way right now to Andrews Air Force Base, Joint Base Andrews. And uh, the president uh, is going to a very important state uh, for him. It's also an important state for Donald Trump. Uh, it's a state that Trump won by 20,000 votes in uh, 2016. We're talking about Wisconsin. It's a state that Joe Biden won by 20,000 votes in 2020. Uh, and it will be critical for both of those candidates in terms of getting to 270 electoral college votes. So the president uh, doing a day trip to Superior, Wisconsin today, announcing a billion dollar grant to build a, a new bridge between Superior, Wisconsin and Duluth, Minnesota, part of the bipartisan infrastructure law. Uh, and that's the reason why the president's going there, and, and I'm traveling with him today on Air Force One. And Biden yesterday received the endorsement of the Auto Workers Union. Um, that's traditionally been the case. The unions support the Democrats. Um, I, I read somewhere this morning, John, I'd love to get your opinion to this, 
that the union bosses don't necessarily affect or impact the rank-and-file workers as they once did. Any validity to that? That is true. Uh, You know, I mean, the rank-and-file does what the rank-and-file does. Uh, That being said, uh, I I think it was a good uh, strategic move and symbolic move uh, earlier uh, last year. I believe it was in the fall when Joe Biden marched on the picket lines along with UAW workers. That symbolic move meant a lot to the rank and file. And I think uh, that was a smart political move on the part of President Biden. Doesn't mean he's going to get every UAW member vote. We're talking about 150,000 members. But remember, the UAW membership, they are in those key Midwestern states that really matter a lot in terms of getting to that necessary 250 electoral college uh, level to win the presidency. And I think that the president, his team, factored that in in having the president do that symbolic move of walking on the picket lines with those UAW workers when they were striking against the big three automakers. Well explained. Stay safe on Air Force One. I'm sure you will. Um, but uh, have safe <laughs> travels, course. and we'll talk next week, John. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ken. Have a great day. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. John Decker, great television senior national editor, White House correspondent. Someone texted me about 20 minutes ago and said, hey, take me behind the curtain. You're talking about donors, had a day to understand the analysis. And donors had a day to understand. I I don't want to say it's euphoric, but there was a little excitement in the Haley campaign when she finished only 11 or 12 points behind instead of 15 or 16 or 18 points. I mean, let's be honest. There was a little bit of overperformance in Haley's campaign and a little bit of underperformance in Trump's campaign. The the majority of overperformance in Haley's campaign was the impact Democrats had in crossing over voting in the Republican primary. Um, so somebody asked me, well, I mean, what are you talking about the donors had a day? Here's how it goes. I'll give you an example. I won't call names. I'll call one name because I don't think he'd mind me doing this. Robert Poles, Republican racist. Very often, big donors who fund political action committees and private expenditures, they'll call Trafalgar and say, hey, we saw your poll, explain it. And Robert will get in the weeds. And Robert, I mean, business guys and business ladies are really good at business. They're not always good at politics. In fact, they're very often not very good at politics. But but Robert will, I mean, let's say rich guy Joe, rich lady Jane. Rich lady Jane is thinking about whether or not to send Nikki Haley another $250,000. Or let's back up whether or not to send another $250,000 to political action committee supporting Nikki Haley, Americans for Prosperity. But I mean, they're running ads on our station, have for, for a good while. Let's say the fundraiser for American for, for Prosperity calls Reed Hoffman, the guy that founded LinkedIn, and Reed says, hey, man, I got to know more. I mean, I understand you guys did a little better in New Hampshire than we thought we'd do, but I got to know a little more before I write another quarter-million-dollar check. I mean, that's money I can send to Biden. But that's money I helped Biden beat Trump in in November. I don't want to waste dollars. And that's when Robert would explain to the rich donor what this data means. And he's got to be honest because if Robert's not honest, he can't go back to that guy. I mean, Robert's got to give them an honest accounting of what he believes this data means. And, And Robert's told me this before. Rich person A or B says, well, what do you think? And Robert, it's over. I mean, you know, you, do I know that with, with, without doubt? No. I mean, there's always a little doubt. I mean, smart people always have a little bit of doubt in what, in what they believe or what they're speculating on. 
But that's how the game is played. So when I said this morning that despite Haley's slight overperformance in New Hampshire, some of the donors, I mean, publicly are now saying, you know, I mean, somebody used a Kenny Rogers reference. You got to know when to fold them, know when to hold them, know when to walk away. And it's time to walk away is what he's advising Nikki Haley. Well, that donor probably talked to somebody like Haley and wanted to better understand what this data means. And when Robert, and I'm just using Robert because he's a friend of the show and he's a personal friend of mine, Robert would say, hey, Nikki overperformed, no doubt. But all of our overperformance is Democrats voting in Republican primary. They do that in New Hampshire more than they do anywhere. They're not doing that in South Carolina. Not to any degree. They're not doing that in Alabama. They're not doing that in Michigan. They're not doing that in Wisconsin. I mean, Trump is overwhelmingly winning Republican voters. I mean, 75, 80% of Republican primary voters, those who ascribe to the notions of, of Republican politics, I mean, they're voting for, for Donald Trump. But that's how it kind of plays out. And that's why I believe there was a day there, the donors didn't throw the towel in that day because they didn't really know what to make of the data. But after several conversations with analysts and pollsters and strategists, now, now the candidate's going to always be told by the consultant, you win, Nikki, you win. I mean, the, the candidate doesn't care about, excuse me, the consultant doesn't care about that candidate. I mean, the consultant, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say they don't love America, but they love that bank account. Conservative Inc. has fleeced American uh, to, to, to a tremendous song and a, and a tremendous tune and they'll always tell the candidate that there, there's, a, there's a ray of hope here. There's a green shoot. There's a chance here. I mean, Trump could have this issue or that. Well, he could. I mean, tr- Trump could die in a plane crash today. Biden could die in a plane crash today. But, but when you take most things as normal, Nikki Haley has very, very, very little chance to win the nomination. Well, I mean, I'll say this. She has no chance to win the nomination. Nikki Haley, let me say that again, has zero chance to win the nomination. Now, could there be legal trouble in Trump's future? Could we go to a convention where people aren't convinced he's the best choice and they start negotiating on the floor? Yeah, I mean, that could happen. But in in the selection process of choosing the Republican nominee, I am 100% sure that Donald Trump gets the nod. Take a break. Back in a few. I don't have time to do the math. Someone texted a second ago and asked, you know, if um, if Haley overperformed as a result of Democrats voting in the Republican primary. And this is not the first time it's ever happened. I mean, this is pretty customary in, uh, in New Hampshire. Um, what accounts for Trump's underperformance? Well, I mean, if Nikki got, let's, let's hypothetically say, and nobody knows the right answer. Uh, I mean, we, we can get to the ballpark. But let's say Nikki's numbers were supposed to be 39 they end up 43 because of Democrats voting in the Republican primary, then Trump's numbers mathematically are going to decline. I mean, the increase, right? I mean, if Nikki's numbers, if we're polling, and, and I talked to Robert a little bit, I mean, if Trafalgar says, look, it's hard for me to say how many Democrats are going to vote in this. I mean, I would imagine you model a certain number based on historical precedents, but you're not going to get it right. You're not calling Democrats asking, hey, do you like Haley or, or Trump? I mean, you got to believe that if, 3,000, and I'm making up a number. Uh, let, let's say 5,000 Democrats. I think it's about 8,000. I mean, I think the number's about 8,000. 8,000 Democrats voted in uh, the New Hampshire primary and 95% voted for Haley. Haley overperforms. Trump still gets his number, but it's a smaller percentage as a result of her 
In other words, if she doesn't get those Democrats, Trump's numbers naturally, mathematically increase, and he's probably at about where the polls had him. I think Trafalgar had him at 57. If I'm not mistaken, he ends up at about 54, 55. That's within the margin of error, but but it's still a 2%, 2.5% miss. Am I making sense? I mean, it's not that Trump gets more votes, but his percentage is higher right. if she gets 3,000 or 5,000 or 6,000 fewer Democrats uh, voting for her. Yeah, if it was a closed primary and you didn't have that fact, I mean, because it would have been difficult for the pollsters. You can't. I mean, that's impossible. To figure out how many Democrats were going to cross over. And- that, that, that would be interesting to me to ask Robert at Trafalgar, hey, when you poll New Hampshire, what plug-in do you use? That's their terminology. What plug-in do you use for how many Democrats will cross over? I mean, we knew that Democrats weren't going to vote for Trump. I mean, they, <laughs> the, the, if, if, if five Democrats voted for Donald Trump, they hit the wrong button. I mean, they mashed the wrong button, as we like to say. But I mean, that's just inconceivable that a Democrat would vote for Donald Trump. I mean, they've been trained to not vote for Trump. In fact, they've been basically demanded or commanded to have Trump derangement syndrome. Um, but does that matter? I mean, somebody said, well, why did Trump? Trump didn't necessarily underperform. Nikki overperformed, and the majority of her overperformance was based on how many Democrats she and Sununu were able to get come out and, and participate in the Republican primary. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Hello, you're on. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Ken, do, do, since Nikki is receiving so much support uh, uh, from the Democrat Party in terms of funding for her campaign, do, uh, do you think this, she could possibly be a secret agent for Donald Trump, bleed money away from the Democrat Party? Now we're going. Now, now we're talking. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. We, we did two shows, two days worth of um, where does the conspiracy theory end? Well, with our universe, never. It never ends. Right, Josh? I mean, th- th- there's always another angle. I think th- it might end at yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, it, w- we confess. We played Alex Jones two consecutive days. I mean, that's how willing we are to go down that, that rabbit hole. Rev got a little bit nervous yesterday when I played out a scenario that I've kind of played out in. In my head, what if the Democrats are not that concerned about Biden's vulnerabilities because they've already got a uh, a trial set? I mean, they've already got a case settled. I mean, they know Trump has legal peril, legal problems. They're not leaving it to a to a um an unbiased jury. They're not leading it to, or they're going to take any chances with the justice system. The uh, the blindfold lady of justice they can't count on, so they've already taken care of business, and they're somewhere down the road. I mean, we heard the tape with Carrie Lake. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the GOP official in Nevada, I mean, offering her X number of dollars to not run for the uh, for the Senate seat. So we know that happens, probably not on rare occasion, probably a lot more than um than we imagine. And that's just ancillary to you know, but she's she's MAGA obviously, and she's pro Trump. But that's ancillary to Trump being elected, right? Correct, correct. So can you can imagine the focus, the planning, the money, the thought that's going into how to stop him. Well, I mean, they played out every scenario imaginable, and it goes back to control or not. I mean, I think the greatest message, Trump, not America first. America first does not need to be about control or not. This campaign between Haley and Trump does. The, the campaign between Trump and Biden does. I think there are more Americans who believe that politicians are bought and sold. I mean, they're pawns in a game. Some are smart, some aren't. Some are good at it, some aren't. Some have been there a long time, some haven't. But the majority of Americans believe that the majority of politicians are basically bought and sold. I mean, they do what they're told to do because financial interest kind of insists they do. 
I think Trump is the one anomaly. I mean, we can argue whether he's a true believer in conservatism, whether he's a, a true believer. Is he loyal to this audience that he's gathered or garnered the faith and trust? I don't, I don't have any idea. I mean, that would be total speculation, but I don't believe anybody thinks that Trump can be controlled. I mean, he's against the grain when it comes to that, and I would highlight that in this campaign over and over and over again. If you want somebody that can be controlled, Nikki Haley's your choice. If you want somebody who can't, here I am. If you want somebody that can be controlled, will be controlled, has been controlled for a long, 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 long time, then vote for Joe Biden. If you want somebody who will, nobody will ever control what I do except me. I just think there's great intrigue and great interest because that kind of plays into this destabilization that we're talking about. Now, now back to Bob's comments. I've said it this morning Reed Hoffman is a Democrat giving money to Nikki Haley. So every dollar Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, gives to Nikki Haley is a dollar he can't give to Joe Biden. Now, newsflash, Reed Hoffman ain't running out of money anytime soon. I mean, there's a lot where that came from. So when the political action committee's not named Americans for Prosperity come and see Reed Hoffman, I'm sure he ponies up. And he's kind of got an intriguing strategy. I want two shots to beat Trump. I want to shot him into the primary and the consultant say, yeah, well, certainly. I mean, we'll take your money because uh, the Koch brothers are funding a lot of this, but not all of it. And there's some other political action committees out there. But I just think Trump's underlying message, once again, not America first versus the conservative ink orbit, but rather Trump and Haley. I think there's great contrast. I think the majority of voters believe that Nikki Haley can be controlled. The majority of voters believe that Joe Biden has been controlled. The majority of voters don't believe that Donald Trump can be controlled. He's a bull in a China shop. How do you control a bull in a China shop? And I would make that one of the kind of the, um, I would prioritize that as a contrasting element in this campaign. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. The biggest problem we have is our government has become an income redistribution factory. It's no longer the, the government instituted among men to protect our rights and our uh, freedoms. So we need to define America first as back to the Constitution. I mean, we've got more people in the wagon than that's pushing the wagon I mean, just think about $34 trillion. If you came up with an extra trillion, it would take you almost 50 years with an extra trillion a year. And that's not increasing anything. They're, they base their budgets on 8% growth. And, and the Social Security, you know, you got an 8%, 9% increase. But they hold the trust funds in accounts that only draw about one and a half, maybe two and a half percent a year. That's impossible to keep up with. So we need to go back to limiting government and uh, letting the people take care of themselves. I mean, that's what we started this whole thing for. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one. 0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few.
Joe's talking about it adheres to the Constitution, which is American. I mean, that's the way it should be. No doubt about it. Anybody that doesn't adhere to the Constitution should be disqualified from being elected. I mean, that if I lived in a perfect world, if, if America had 338 million Vulcans and I was chief Vulcan of all, <laughs> uh, if you say I'm going to, you know, obey the Constitution sometime and not other times, you'd be disqualified from serving an elected office. In fact, what is the oath of office? What to, to, to adhere to the Constitution? But politics is Hollywood for crazy people. I mean, it is. It's a <laughs> it's show business. It's a um, it's a talent show. It's a media contest. So you've got candidate A, and candidate A says, if you elect me, every decision I make will be in strict adherence to the Constitution. And there's a person standing beside candidate A, candidate B, seeking the same vote, and he says, if you vote for me, I'll exempt the first $80,000 of tax on your family income. I mean, okay. Give me that. Yeah, g- <laughs> give me the guy that says he's going to let me keep more of my money. I don't know about that adherence to the Constitution. I mean, that's where we've turned. I mean, that's what we are. you got to accept where we are. I tell my middle kid a lot of times, he doesn't like the world. And I said, son, I get it. I don't like a lot of things in the world, but I got to meet the world where it is every day. You got to meet politics where it is every day. I mean, I understand principled and I understand having ethics and morality and, and believing in the foundational arguments of America. I mean, I get all that. And I think the Constitution is brilliant. And I think we are an amazing nation when we adhere to the Constitution. But elections are talent shows and gimmicks, sound bites. I mean, it just is. I'm sorry. I wish it weren't the case. I wish every candidate had to adhere to the Constitution, and if they don't, they're thrown out of office because it's that brilliant a document. But the truth is, if somebody stands in a room of a 1,000 people and says, if you elect me, I'll adhere to the Constitution, and the opponent says, if you elect me, I'll let you keep all $80,000 of the first income you earn, guess who wins that room of a 1,000 people? But it's 80-20. People live in the real world. They don't live in this constitutional concept. Um, and, and that's just the nature of politics today in America. Why do we think Trump has done so well? Trump understands entertainment. Trump understands marketing. Trump understands sensationalism. He understands how the consumer, in this case the voter, responds to that. He's masterful at gaining attention. Sometimes Trump is so good at it, you don't know he's doing it. I mean, Haley gets a little momentum. S- Trump will do something in the next day or two or three to thwart that momentum. It's not real momentum. I mean, momentum. I think John Decker even admitted the media likes a good story. And if there's not a story, we'll make one up. We'll create a story out of thin air. Um, Haley overperformed by two percentage points, maybe three, in New Hampshire. The majority are Democrats. We've got a race on our hands, folks. I mean, that's the media narrative today. We've got a race on our hands. No, we don't. We never have and we never will. The day Donald Trump decided to run for president and the day Bragg went after him was the day the GOP primary was over. Take a break. Back in a few. I can assure you I was not a valedictorian in anything. I mean, common sense is, uh, my father always said, you know, education is expensive. And I'm not talking about formal education. I'm talking about the school of hard knocks, learning things in real world, in the real world, in real time. It's quite the expensive endeavor. I don't know that we've got an answer to the question that we asked this morning. Um, Football reigns supreme, right? Men's Mm -hmm. basketball would be second. We've debated, is women's basketball closing the gap 
on men's baseball. What's the third most important sport at Clemson? It would be men's baseball. What's the third most important sport at the University of South Carolina? And I don't think we've got clarity with an no. answer, right? We have not. Uh, and both have been successful. I mean, the basket, the women's sure. basketball team more recently, oh, uh, more successful. Um, I mean, I know my answer is, is men's baseball, but we have a cosmopolitan bunch that call themselves <laughs> Gamecock fans. They may, uh, they may buy into this wokeness and, and disagree with me. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair and co-chair of the Grand Ole Party at the national level is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. You know, I think politics is the number one sport. I'm going to put that at the top. It, it's the roughest <laughs> damn sport I've ever participated in. I promise you that. And some of the most expensive lessons I've ever learned was in, was in the game of, um, of politics. But I'm still standing and got me a microphone now to, um, to cast aspersions on the others as they, as they chose to cast aspersions on me. Drew, I, 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 you and I debated, not argued, debated several months ago and um and I'm arguing that the donors and voters in the in the in the party you and I are a part of are in an asymmetrical relationship. You say, well, I mean, I get it. I mean, there, there's some misalignment there, but historically we've had these sorts of situations. I don't know that we've ever had it like this, Drew. Um, Nikki Haley to me has very little chance to win the nomination, but the money still rolls in. I mean, I, I read today where she's got. I think now booked $1.2 million in ads. I think the American Prosperity, about a million dollars in ads. They expect to spend about $4 million in advertising in South Carolina. Uh, Help me make heads or tails of that. Well, so it's a couple of things. I think, first off, when you say donors, and let's just talk about, you know, who we're talking about, even when you say big donors. I mean, because, you know, we have a lot of small donors, people who give 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks or so a year and so forth to the GOP. Uh, you know, you've got limits on what you can give to candidates, uh, even candidates for president. Uh, I, I'm going to show my ignorance here. I think right now maybe it's around $5,000 or something like that uh, directly to a campaign. Um, but then you've got super PACs, you know, which have no limits, and uh, that's which you know, essentially gets around the whole idea of having limits, and that's a whole other conversation you and I can have. Uh, and you've got a class of uh, folks uh, and groups and people who finance uh, those groups uh, in some cases, who are not conservatives, quite frankly, uh, who are writing big checks. And some of them who are, uh, I would say, more libertarian, really, than they are conservative. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's a whole other conversation. So it, it, it varies. Uh, I can say this. Uh, in my capacity as co-chair with the RNC, I make a lot of fundraising calls to big donors. Uh, and just anecdotally, I'll break them out into three categories. You know, over the course of the last years, I've been working to do that. Uh, there are uh, never Trumpers, and there are always Trumpers, and there are the folks who will take what comes and want to support the party. Group number three is the one who's been writing most of the checks for the last year. Uh, as things look more like uh, you know, the former president will be the nominee, group number one, or rather two in this example, the always Trumpers, are now okay, coming on board. Uh, and the question is, what happens to that first group? Uh, and you know, at some point, some of those are going to come off the sidelines because it's going to be an A-B proposition. That's what we're going to have. You're not going to be able to get away from that when it comes to the fall. Uh, and they're going to have to make a choice. Uh, but in the meantime, you have some of those. And these are, and by the way, these are people, though, who write 
just be, be clear here, who write really, really big checks. I'm talking seven-figure checks, and that's super PAC-type money, by the way. And there are not a lot of those people. Let's just be clear about that, too. This is not like, you know, the, the, the major donor cabal, you know, uh, sitting up at the country club. Man, no, that, that's not those folks. That's not the folks you know, who own businesses and that kind of stuff. These are people who uh, have, uh, you know, generational wealth in many cases or just, you know, some business that has exploded that they've got, you know, seven figures and eight figures to throw around in politics. Small group of people. Uh, and so, you know, it's not like a big, you know, numerical disparity within the donor class or with the party, but some of them are out there and, you know, I look free country, they can spend their money and, uh, then we'll see what happens. Drew, it doesn't bother me when, when, when Henry Kravis or Stanley Drunken Miller or Ken Langone decide to fund Haley's campaign. I mean, they have every right to do that and they've gone to bat for Republican politics and deregulation and lower taxes, many, many many years. It does bother me when someone like Reed Hoffman becomes a big player in Republican politics, funding super PACs and giving one candidate money when he admits readily, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Biden supporter, but I want to take two shots at Donald Trump. Does that contaminate the process? You said it better. I mean, it's a free country. It's his money. He can do with it what he chooses to do with it. But as people who care deeply about the Republican Party, does that contaminate the process when somebody like Hoffman tries to influence outcomes? Well, it doesn't make things any better within the party. I mean, again, remember, the goal here for us is to win in November. To get to winning in November, we need to have a unified party. To have a unified party, we have discussions about issues, about where we want to go and who needs to be the leader. We hash that out in what we call primaries and caucuses. We'll get that nominee in November. If in the meantime, though. Uh, you know, folks within the party decide this candidate or that candidate is taking unfair shots or is associating with the wrong people and taking money from the wrong people. That is going to figure into their judgment. And that applies to all candidates. Uh, and I think it should. Uh, and they'll take all that into consideration. But does the Republican uh, Party have a job, a responsibility in calling that a ball or strike? No, that's, again, this is where we get to. What's the purpose of the party? Is that a fair I question? Is that did. a fair question, what I just asked? I mean, yeah. you, you are an official I, representative yeah. of, of the National Party. Right. Reed Hoppin is a known Democrat. We know why he's funding Haley. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. Sure. Should, is it the RNC's job to make the public aware of that, or is that for no. the campaigns to hash out? That's for the campaigns to hash And look, it's not, <laughs> as you, you pointed out, we're talking about this right now. It's not like this kind of stuff can be kept a secret. It's not like you need somebody with an RNC label around their neck to stand up and point and say, look, 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 this stuff is out there. It gets out there. It is not going to stay quiet, anything like that. The one, you've got the campaign that's looking to pounce on anything or the opposing campaign. And two, you have plenty of people within the party writ large who are going to point that out. The job, though, the main job of the party and of the committee in this case is to manage the process to make sure that when the process is over, everybody feels like they've been able to get their shot, their candidate, all right, whoever they are has been out there, they've had it, it's been a fair platform, a fair fight, so we'll all get on board with a winner. Because if we're not able to do that, then we're divided, and when we're divided, we're less likely to win. With winning is November is our number one goal with whoever Republicans around the country decide to nominate. I have a takeaway from New Hampshire. What is your takeaway, Drew? What, what did we learn in New Hampshire that we didn't know? 
Well, I, you know, we saw uh, something I think a lot of people didn't expect to see, uh, and, and I think that's probably because they weren't paying attention, uh, and that is uh, President Trump uh, get a record number of votes in New Hampshire. So it's not just that he won in New Hampshire. He got a record number of votes, I think 35,000 more than anybody has ever gotten in a New Hampshire Republican primary. That's huge, uh, and that comes after, of course, winning in Iowa. Uh, and again, that is an electorate that is not like the electorate in South Carolina. You know, New Hampshire and South Carolina are different. Uh, and in their case, of course, you have the Republican and Democrat primaries being held on the same day. People can vote in either one. We saw what the breakdowns were, who supported who, uh, and you can make your own judgment from that. Going to be different here in South Carolina. Democrats are having their primary on February 6th. We're having ours on February 24th. By law, if you vote in the Democrat primary, you cannot vote in the Republican primary. You are stricken from the rolls. You will not be allowed to cast a ballot. That alone changes the dynamic, plus the fact voters in South Carolina are more conservative than in New Hampshire, especially Republican voters, uh, when it comes to the issues that they care about and their positions on those issues. That is going to change the dynamic drastically. Then when you consider Nevada, which is having a caucus, February the 8th, I believe is the date, two days after the state is making the party hold a primary, but the primary don't, doesn't count for delegates. The caucus does. Only President Trump of the remaining candidates has filed, as I understand it, for the caucus. The caucus awards a delegate. So that means from a delegate standpoint, by the time we're here in South Carolina, uh, the former president will have won essentially three states in a row. Uh, that's never happened before. And then we'll have our primary here on February 24th. Uh, you know, and, and look, South Carolina has been, I've said this before and I've used this quote and I use it because it's true. Uh, you know, since 1980, no Republican has ever won the White House without winning the South Carolina Republican primary, ever. Uh, South Carolina is the graveyard of presidential campaigns. We are the booster rocket to at least one campaign because 10 days later, you've got Super Tuesday. You have to be able to have the money, the manpower, and the time to get in the six to 12 states at one time. And that is very, very cost and manpower prohibitive. Uh, that's why winning here is so important, because it can give you that boost to make that possible. And that's why so many campaigns after South Carolina go by the boards. And that's been the past. We'll see if that's the prologue. Is it unusual for only two candidates to come to South Carolina? Yes. Well, you know, the last time we essentially had what looks like we're setting up right now, was 2000. It was the McCain-Bush primary. If you remember that, you were around back then. Mm -hmm. You know how, how rough that one got. Uh, I, I still know some people who don't like to talk to one another because of that primary. I mean, you know, we've got sharp elbows down here when it comes to primaries and campaigns, you know. Uh, but it's like we were joking earlier. I mean, politics is a contact sport in South Carolina. We take it seriously. Uh, and I, I think uh, it's, it's, we're probably looking for a repeat of the 2000 primary, in my opinion. That's very interesting. Drew, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. You can defer. You can answer. You can say as much as you'd like or not. There's a story breaking out of Arizona involving Carrie Lake. What, 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 what can you say? What are you willing to say in regards to that? Because, I, I mean, I, I know enough to be dangerous, but, but I certainly don't want to be a, a hard-charging, you know, a reporter. Sure. But, but, but I, we, we talked about it. What, what can you say about that? And does the National Party get involved in situations like that? 
Well, I mean, that's the Arizona GOP situations. I mean, we don't even have the authority or anything to get involved in a situation like that and the way the party and the rules are set up. Uh, you know, I'll say just based on what little I know, uh, I, I know uh, both individuals. Uh, I, know, I know the chairman there much better uh, than uh, Ms. Lake, but no, met both of them a good number of times. Uh, as I understand it, and granted, probably not having all the details, uh, they had numerous conversations, and one conversation apparently was recorded by her. You know, that, all right, that's, that tells me some stuff right there, but, you know, setting that aside, uh, we have conversations all the time with people about who's best to run for what office. Now, that's not to say you go and say, hey, you know, Ken, if you won't run for this, we'll make sure you get a good job with a whole lot of money. I've never had those conversations. Those don't happen. I don't know anybody will give anybody a lot of money to run for office. There are a lot of candidates so that you know. You, you, we'll have conversations to try to say, look, you'd be better off if you ran for county council rather than state house. Uh, and you'd be better if you ran for this job versus that one. I've got you know, one candidate right now. We're running for one office. He's convinced he needs to run for one office, and I think he should run for something else because I know he's probably going to lose the one he's thinking about running for. And he could win the one I'd want him to run for because I have nobody else who'd run for it. So, you know, party leaders have those conversations all the time because they have to. Because, again, our job is what? To win. Put the best candidate in the best campaign where they can win. Now, how far they go afoul of that uh, and conversations that get a little off base from that, uh, offering things to people for doing one thing versus another, that's a whole other matter. But, again, I don't know all the details. That's well explained. I'll, I'll um. We'll have a beer one of these days, and I'll tell you about the meeting Tim Scott and I had um, uh, one night about what's best <laughs> for him, what's best for me, and the party got involved right. in that uh, in, in a very fair way. I mean, they, they right. got involved in right. and then said, hey, we, we, we kind of like both of you on the scene, and, you know, may, maybe this is a better opportunity than, than this other opportunity. So, I mean, I, I'm well aware, and I think that's helpful. Right. I mean, I think it's helpful for the party to help facilitate some of the placing of certain political figures. I agree. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate it, my man. I'll just say this. Okay. You and I know you got to have a little bit of ego to be willing to offer yourself for office. You know, to get out there and say, you're better than anybody else. Vote for me. That, that takes a little bit of ego. Sometimes some people get double-dipped and don't want to listen. And one of our jobs <laughs> is to help make them listen and understand what's best for them and what's best for the party. Well said. Well so. said. Politicians are like the rest of it, just more so, is what I've always, I've always <laughs> said. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate it, my man. Have a good one. Have a yes, good sir. day. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, co-chair of the National Party. We'll be back in a bit. And um, I think on the other side, we'll have Andre Bauer and a guest. We're talking about China. We're talking about uh, artificial intelligence. We're talking about technology. We're talking about asking presidents to make a pledge that they will protect American technology from ah, some of the unsavory things we think the Chinese government may or may not have done. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. We told you at the beginning of the morning we had a jam-packed show. We've had uh, a variety of guests. We're now honored to have the second-best lieutenant governor in the history of South Carolina. <laughs> Clearly the second-best lieutenant governor in the history of South Carolina. Andre Bauer is with us. Andre, good morning. How are you, sir? Mm, maybe we don't. Maybe we don't. Hey, hey, hey I'm here. God, how are you? Wake up, my man. How are you? 
I'm here, man. One of my favorite <laughs> lieutenant governors of all time. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, we'll we'll stop with the BS and we'll get to business <laughs> here. We, we've got somebody else on the line. I want to make sure we can hear Jeff. Jeff King of the Tech Integrity Project is with us. Jeff, are you there? Yes, thanks for having me. Okay, we've made the necessary connections. Um, Andre and I talked last week about Donald Trump and the Republican Party and presidential candidates. And, I, and I'm, I've had a lot of conversations over the years about the geopolitical adversary that is China. I grew up in the Cold War. I mean, it was all about Russia and nuclear armaments and Armageddon and putting books over your head in the halls of, of schools. We live in a very different era now, in a different age. It's not about nuclear weaponry. It's about technology and, and privacy. And, and we believe that China has been a great offender in in and and not protecting and maybe american business has been um complicit in not taking the chinese as seriously as i think we should as a geopolitical adversary andre's involved uh jeff king's involved in trying to get presidential candidates made aware of how significant this is so andre i'll get out of the way and let you kind of explain your involvement and then we'll get to jeff and kind of um talk about what you're trying to get some of these candidates to agree to. Well, Ken, you, I, I think you did a great job of opening up and explaining China's on a mission to control our basic technologies. When you look at self-driving cars, industrial automation, you know, in the last 30 years, when I was a kid, we were still a great manufacturing state, as was our country. But what happened was they started coming over here, taking pictures of technology at the different trade shows, went back and replicated our equipment, undercut our costs because of regulation and taxation and litigation and maybe made them become very competitive and and really made us become almost non-competitive in so many sectors and whether you look at chips now um producing so many products we can't compete because of the cost and again because of the litigation taxation regulation now we've got another arm of this where they're continuing to steal our technology and we are letting american companies are over there wanting to do business so badly that they are exposing our information and our technology to folks that are not our friends and so what we're trying to do is get all the presidential candidates to commit that they are not going to continue to let this happen now that that field is getting much smaller rather rapidly and we've had some success with several of the candidates did in fact, sign up. And now we're even looking, um, and of course, as big as your show and as impressive it is, I'm sure you have some of them as well. Some of these congressional, um, not only candidates, but some of the people that hold uh, office, whether at the, the Senate level, U.S. Senate level, the congressional level, the state level, we, uh, we need more people speaking up saying that we are concerned about China having this information and that we're going to do something about it. Now, Jeff is much more knowledgeable than I, but this got my attention when I started talking to the, the folks. And um, I said, what can I do? And so anyway, I, I think this is a discussion worthy of having. I appreciate you having us on your show in the morning. And uh, I'll turn it over to Jeff from that. Jeff, Andre and I are probably efficient, proficient at politicizing whatever it is um but I want to get into the weeds with you if you don't mind. I mean, I've read stories about Google and, and some of these other tech companies and, and the relationship they have with the Chinese communist, communist government. Specifically, what are you most concerned about? Well, the biggest concern is that American big tech companies such as Microsoft, 
Amazon and Apple are actively helping the Chinese Communist Party. They're invested and involved in all kinds of businesses in China that uh, help the Chinese Communist Party, which is an adversary, uh, obtain its malign goals. So the Chinese Communist Party is anti-democracy, it's anti-rights, uh, anti-civil liberties. Uh, just imagine one of those old sci-fi novels. So, you know, it used to be back in the day that you could read, uh, you know, a, a book uh, like George Orwell's 1984 or watch uh, Minority Report with Tom Cruise, which is a movie uh, about people who are who are brought to the police for crimes they haven't even committed yet because these crimes will be committed in the future. This literally is happening in China. The government arrests people for crimes that they're supposed to commit in the future according to an artificial intelligence system. Now, one of the companies that has uh, been very helpful to the Chinese Communist Party in developing AI is Microsoft. So they run a laboratory uh, in Beijing, in, in the capital of China, called Microsoft Research Asia, which has been deeply involved in training many of the people who've gone on to help the Chinese Communist Party develop the technology that they're using against America, against their own people, that they're spreading around the world. Um, it truly is a heinous threat. And what we're finding is that these American big, big tech companies, for them, it's all about the money. They don't care about uh, your rights, your liberties. They don't care about your status as an American citizen. They're willing to sell out and to help China if they can put that money in their back pocket. Well, Jeff, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I've learned in politics, money's the answer. Now what's the question? So if the Chinese government is is working with these American technology companies and everybody's getting fat and happy, what can the body politic do? Andre's talking about requiring certain presidential candidates or members of Congress to sign a pledge or an oath. But legislatively, what do we need to prioritize to stop these companies from doing this? So our organization, the Tech Integrity Project, we're not a lobbying organization, so we're not allowed to uh, advocate for specific legislation. But what we do want uh, in this pledge is that these candidates are pledging to do everything in their power, if elected to office, to stop these companies from aiding the Chinese Communist Party and other adversaries, too. So that could include Russia, other countries that are very antithetical and hostile to our democracy and to our country. Um, but th there's a whole arsenal of tools that the, the government can use to stop these companies. Uh, there's no single one way to do it. There are, you know, there are various uh, sanctions. There are, uh, you know, economic blockades. There are these things called export controls. We can stop the sale of, of uh, certain types of advanced uh, chips and semiconductors to China, which are helping them build these tools. You know, we can stop the flow of investments going to China. Um, but the, the the problem is that so far. The U.S. government has not done enough because these companies, they are so entrenched and very influential and very powerful. They do not want, uh, you know, to have this flow cut off to China. They want to stay in China and they want to do what they can to work with the Chinese Communist Party just because it is so profitable. And Andre, you and I both are Trump supporters. I mean, we're big Trump supporters, very involved in the Trump campaign and trying to get him reelected in 2024. I mean, I got to believe that you think, as I do, this plays into the kind of the, the narrative of America first. Our party historically, and in, in, in the majority of our lives, Andre, has been a globalist, interventionist sort of party. It seems to be turning around and heading toward a place that does pri prioritize the interest of the American worker. Is that why you're so involved, Andre? 
<clears throat> I, there's a multitude of fronts of why I'm involved, Ken, but I, I don't even understand everything in AI. I don't even understand the depth of the implications of what it will be able to do in the future. You know, I can only see the little surface stuff. But with three children, I worry about anyone that is not totally our friend and only motivated by money, power, and greed to have all this information. Jeff, how can we help? I mean, you you mentioned the Tech Integrity Project, which you're a part of. Andre is is, is helping you gain traction in South Carolina by raising awareness. But how can we help the Tech Integrity Project successfully uh, convince members of Congress that this is the right thing to do? Well, get out and vote. You know, make this an issue and make this an issue that you're voting on. Uh, you know, right to your congressman, right to your senator. The the, the big problem now is that, uh, you know, this is a topic that's certainly gaining momentum. It's something that all the candidates are, are talking about, and we're very happy with that. But uh, the, the problem is that the companies are still working with China, and they're doing it in ways that are so nefarious. So, you know, think about your smartphone, your TV. Think about all the tech you're using. How would you feel if the Chinese Communist Party, this foreign dictatorship, has the ability to reach into your data, to spy on you, to invade your privacy? That's what's happening because these companies are compromised. They cannot protect the privacy of Americans because they're in China's pocket. It's something that's very worrying, and it's something that we do have the power to overturn with our votes. Andre mentioned he doesn't understand AI. Surprise, surprise, nor do I. I mean, I understand enough to freak out about it. I do understand that, that my phone spies on me and it makes recommendations on previous conver- conversations. I mean, does anybody understand AI, Jeff? I mean, you would understand it much better than Andre or I, but, but when, we, when we start talking about AI, the impact it could eventually have, I mean, it's all hypothetical. We really don't have a grasp on, on how much that could change the world around us. Is that fair? So, right, we don't, we, we don't completely know exactly where, where AI is going. We don't know exactly what's going to happen with it because it is such a new technology. Many of the developments you know, that have been happening, they're, they're fresh, they're new, it's still theoretical. But we have seen a lot of AI in action so far, and not all of it is great. So like, even what's happening over in China right now, the government runs an AI system called Skynet. So Skynet is literally – the name of the, the giant robotic system in Terminator that was used to uh, end all humanity. So the, the Chinese Communist Party uses that same name for its AI system, and it uses that AI system to spy on all citizens. So everything you do, every purchase you make, every uh, camera, government camera that sees you walking down the street, literally everything you do from the time you're awake, even when you're asleep, um, you know, you're, you're snoring potentially – your, you know, your dreaming, all of that is documented by the Chinese Communist Party and put into this giant AI system, which is used to track and learn things about people, try to figure out uh, what they might do in the future, whether they might pose some kind of threat. Uh, it really is a scary system that they've set up. It's a scary prospect, and that this is what they want to do around the world. They have made it clear that their intention is to overturn American democracy to overturn American power with the forces of technology. And that's what we're worried about. We cannot have these American big tech companies just going over there and handing them the tools to do this. That's what we want to stop. And that's why we're targeting Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple. They are involved in this and they're complacent. And 
it is a threat to our country. And Andre, I guess in closing, you're recommending that voters make their senators, congressmen, and potential presidents aware of how concerned you are about this. Absolutely. I, I think, number one, what you're doing is getting the word out there. Folks are on their way to work, and they go, this makes sense. Many of them have the same concerns. But even at the state level, if you see your elected office holder, it'd be nice for the state to pass legislation to address this as well. Uh, a lot of times they're just concurrent resolutions. You've been down that road that we pass something to send it to Washington to say, as a state, we're very concerned. Do something, Washington. Very well explained. Andre, Jeff, thank you for your time, and keep us in the loop. I mean, we'll have you back if we make progress, if there's a revelation, because um, I do think it's that important, and I appreciate you guys coming on this morning and enlightening our audience. Thank you. Thanks, Governor. Thank have a blessed weekend, brother. Do the same. Come see me one day. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So here's Conspiracy Theory 101. I mean, if we ever did a course in conspiracy theories, Josh loves this. Josh told you yesterday, hey, man, you may be more of a conspiracy theorist than you give yourself credit for. So back in the day, in the early days of smartphones, I'm with a bunch of good old boys. And you know how good old boys are. We drink a beer and we tell a story. We drink another beer and we tell a story. The older I get, the better I was at what? Everything. I mean, the older I get, the better I was at whatever. I mean, everything. So, um... So all of a sudden, one of the good old boys says, that phone listens to you. And all the other good old boys said, boy, that phone don't listen to anybody. That's crazy. I mean, that's conspiracy theory. And um, and about a year later, we get together, and instead of one guy saying it, two guys say it. That phone's listening to me, man. Well, what do you mean that phone's Come on, dude, really? Well, th- we know now. I mean, we know now. There, there is no doubt in my mind, and I don't understand. I mean, it's magic. I mean, it's absolute magic. I said yesterday, penny and chip, microprocessors. I don't know what a penny and chip is. I don't have any idea. I've heard it. I mean, I've heard it said. I've seen it written. Uh, I know it's got something to do with this, with this device, but I don't have any idea. But we know now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that it monitors our behavior. It listens to what we say. I'm convinced it reads my mind. I was getting ready to tell you a story. <laughs> I'm from convinced it reads my damn feeble mind. Two days ago, somebody cooks popcorn in the microwave here at the office. And I got the, the smell of popcorn in my office. And I thought to myself, I smell popcorn. That smells good. Guess what? Did you verbalize it? I don't think I did. It read your mind. I got an it ad. It reads your mind. I mean, I think it said, hey, would you like to try some Orville Redenbacher? I'm freaked me out. Alex Jones is on the Joe Rogan podcast, (laughs) (laughs) and you can't turn it off. It's impossible. When you turn the Joe Rogan podcast on with Alex Jones as the guest, it's about four hours. I'm giving you warning, half four hours. You can't turn it off. I mean, you you just can't. In there, Joe Rogan says, Alex Jones kind of goes off on one of these crazy conspiracy theories he has. And Rogan, you can't play Rogan on terrestrial radio because of the F-bomb. I mean, it's like, you know, blankety blank. I mean, it's just it's a part of his verbiage. I mean, he just says it over and over and over again. I think he says it without knowing he's saying it. But um, but anyway, Alex Jones says something about they're putting chips behind people's ears in their sleep. I mean, they're invading homes. And when you go to the doctor and you think they're doing something, they're not doing that. They're putting chips behind your ears so they can read your mind. And Rogan goes... Alex, I told you blankety blank, 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 that when you come on the show and start talking that blankety blank, 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 people think you're crazy. 
and you made a deal with me, man. I mean, you're not a, you're not dumb. You're a smart guy. You're unbelievably well read. You know the world around you as well as anybody I know. But you won't stop there, man. You're talking about when you go to the doctor, they put these chips behind your ears so they can read your mind. And Alex Jones says, you're right, Joe. You're right. I, I, I made a deal with you. I made to get on your show. I made a deal with you. I wouldn't go down that road. And, and I apologize. I apologize to you. And I apologize to all your listeners. But they're doing it. <laughs> they're, they're doing it, Joe. <laughs> it's almost like he can't. He can't help. They're doing it, Joe. I'm telling you, they're doing it. It, it's almost, I mean, Josh, what do you think of that? I mean, you grew up in that world. That's normal to you. I would argue that when I signed the user agreement with Apple, I probably gave up my privacy. I mean, it's in the fine print. You know, are, are, are you are you agreeing to all the terms and conditions of this, are, are, you know, buying this phone and having this phone and paying this bill? Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm obligated to pay the bill. And here's the user agreement. And here's what goes along with the user agreement. And I would imagine there's some real lawyerly language in that user agreement that gives them the right to spy on me, that gives them the right to invade my, my privacy. That's bizarre to me. And it's un-American to me. But I think that's where we are. You say? I completely agree. I mean, the, the fact that your phones listen in on you is no, no secret at all. Now, I, I don't think that they're putting chips in to read people's mind. And I don't think that the phone can read your mind, but it does go to show you how interconnected the network is. So what is the network? I'll, I'll tell you. And it's not magic. It is algorithms. It is science. So what happens, it was me. I had popcorn and one other coworker <laughs> down here, one of our salespeople was commenting on how they don't like the smell of popcorn. And then, so I think, you know, the, the, the algorithm knows, the system knows. It's like, okay, all these people are accumulating at the same place in one day. And two of them are now talking about popcorn. So I'm going to send ads to everyone in there about popcorn. That's the network. Yeah. That's the yeah, network. And GPS it says, locators. And, and so when it, sometimes, because I've gotten things where I think stuff and then get ads that are like related to it. And I think it's, you have a large majority of people, they're talking about uh, virtual reality. And then that subject leads to augmented reality glasses. So if I mention virtual reality and, and I just think about augmented reality, all these other people have this connection to it. He probably has the same one. I'm going to send him an ad for augmented reality. So it seems like it's reading your mind, but in reality... Most people just think the same. So we're underestimating the ability of the network. I mean, as, as capable as we think it is, it's even more capable. It's far more advanced. It's far more advanced. What, what uh, do you mean far more advanced? That's what I don't understand. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to Schofields and buy a safe. And mm -hmm. I'm putting my phone in the safe every night. I'm going to drill a little hole for the charger to go through. <laughs> and I'm putting my phone in the safe every night. Because it's none of its business but, but, what I'm doing. But using this example, I mean, he just explained the the phones, the devices know that there's, I mean, everybody who has a device and you gather at this place, same location. So it knows that. It learns that this group of people are this in this proximity. So somebody says popcorn downstairs in our building and I get an ad upstairs on because my phone. Because they know you're in close proximity. Yeah. See, see, that's, that's the underestimation part, I think. I think dummies like me. 
go, well, I'm there. you know, I, I was looking for a barn jacket, and they sent me an ad about a barn jacket. That's above my pay grade, but not but so far yeah. above my pay grade. Right. Well, if but you searched it's it on your, more if you search something on your phone and then you get an ad for it, makes sense. I get that. And now we know that if you talk about something and you get an ad for it, you probably don't like it, but you know how and why it's doing. But it. you're talking about because you're in close proximity to Josh and somebody around Josh said popcorn, <laughs> they know you're upstairs in an office somewhere. They're going to send you an ad about popcorn. Apparently. See, that's scary. It is. That's scary. That's why we need to whip the Chinese. I mean, we really need to whip these Chinese. I'm telling you, forget Ukraine, forget Russia. China is our geopolitical adversary. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I looked this morning, some of the ad buys. Nikki Haley has about $1.2 million in committed ad buys. The Americans for Prosperity have about a million dollars in committed ad buys. There's a fundraiser January 20th with Ken Langone and some of the other heavy hitters um, that, that kind of hedge their bets that, um, you know, donate to Democrats and Republicans. So I got to believe she's continuing. I mean, I understand that there's a storyline out there about overperforming and I in um, New Hampshire and Trump underperforming a bit. I don't know how consequential that is, but it does seem that good old South Carolina is going to have a Republican primary consisting of not just Donald Trump, but Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us. He's in our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you? I got to think a lot of those ad buys are going right there uh, to the coffers of WFRK. No? We, we certainly <laughs> hope they are. That's why I'm pulling for a contested primary, and the majority of my good friends in media are as well. Um, J- Jared, I, I'll, I'll just, I mean, I, you're our guest. You're, you're the expert. But I ran for office with Nikki in 2010, and I understand the state fairly well. I mean, I've looked at where does she go from here, and I just don't see a positive path forward. And if Nikki Haley wants to be a factor moving forward, how do you lose your home state by 15, 18, think, 20, 25 points? I mean, there's a lot of pressure, I would imagine, on the Haley campaign. Um, you know, the best state for her, at least when you kind of look at the makeup of Republican voters and voters who participate in, in a Republican primary was New Hampshire, right? It is a, you have a lot of sort of moderate Republicans. You have a very secular state. There are 40% of voters there are independents who can vote in either primary. And she has a lot of support there. That's just not the makeup moving forward, not in South Carolina, not in an awful lot of these super Tuesday states. And so, um, you know, I don't think her campaign is yet kind of classifying this as like must win, but I don't know where the supporters that are helping, you know, raise funds would necessarily look towards if um, it is a a big defeat there in about uh, three and a half weeks. So as a, as someone who commentates on the national political scene, I mean, do, do, do you just, is it, is it all about Super Tuesday? I mean, is that kind of where the focus is? I mean, if they, you've agreed. I've, no, I mean, it, it's got to be on South Carolina. I okay. Mean, I, because think about Super Tuesday is so hard when you think about, um, you know, obviously the number of states in play, uh, but the size, I mean, I, isn't Texas a Super Tuesday state? Like it, these are huge states with multiple media markets it is wildly expensive it's essentially running a national campaign which is what it's supposed to do right i mean you want it that is the test for for these candidates and uh, again uh, you know i i moving forward losing in south carolina if she does that being said if she doesn't 
get, you know, she wins South Carolina or maybe loses close, then I think, you know, you have some momentum. But that's why I think right now the focus, I mean, I, I can't imagine her doing events outside of South Carolina between now and, and the primary. And Jared, I'll say this is not a question and I'll let you go. I mean, I, I've argued with our with our state chair and some of the national representatives the Republican donor base and its voters are in an asymmetrical relationship. And I think it's never been more obvious than where we find ourselves sure. um, right now. Thank you, Jared. Appreciate your time. Sure thing. You know, it's hard for me to, I mean, this is really egotistical. You ready, Josh? It's hard for me to ask national media about the South Carolina situation. I mean, I think I understand it better than they do. I mean, I understand they're, I mean, they're, they're forming opinions from afar. They're making very informed observations and they're giving somewhat of a journalistic analysis of what they what they see down the road. But, I mean, I think I understand where we are right now. Um, I think Jared nailed it. There's not a more favorable state than, um, than New Hampshire. I mean, if Haley is going to ma- make, a, make a comeback, it's got to happen in New Hampshire. And I just don't know if overperforming by two or three percentage points is making a comeback, especially when it's on the back of Democrat voters. I mean, by and large, that's the bump. That was the overperformance. Two, two and a half, three points. Democrat voters got her from 40 to 43, from 39 to 42, whatever her numbers end up, maybe 44. I think it's 43. Trump's at about 54, 55. I mean, that's a thrashing in a state that favors Nikki Haley. And and I just don't know where you go from here. And, And if Nikki Haley called me today, she won't, rest assured. But if Nikki were to call me today and said, hey, what do you think? I'd live to fight another day. I mean, I, Nikki has a weird dilemma. And the dilemma is her style of politics. By that, I mean she's become a darling of the donors. She's become someone that a lot of voters believe are going to be controlled by those donors. And that's just not, stylistically, that's not where the voters uh, want their candidate to be now. They, they want it to be, and I, I keep going back to the word. Um, I mean, it's not disruptive. It's destabilizing. Is destabilizing too harsh a word, Josh? Is it too strong? I mean, I think we all agree on disruption. I mean, I think everybody listening to my voice believe that Trump brings about some degree of political disruption, and the majority of Republicans are for that. I read a tweet yesterday from a good friend of mine, not a good friend of mine, an acquaintance of mine who knows politics up one side and down the other, and he admitted that he underestimated how much change the Republican base really wants. I mean, he thought they could spoon-feed a little bit of this and, hey, let's give them some of Trump and some of this. No, no. I mean, they, they want it all. So, so, so if we all agree that disruption is part of the motivation, is destabilizing the system an overstatement? No, no. I think, actually, that's pretty accurate, but I'm okay with it. I think that's a good thing. I is think- it, but is it dangerous? No. I mean, if we I mean, got, well, I mean, think about it now. We, we, we got a constitution. I mean, Joe talked about that earlier. I, I, I don't believe you win elections saying, if you elect me, I'm adhering to the constitution. I just don't. I think elections are talent contest. There's some showbiz in here. It's about photo ops. It's about kissing. Back. I mean, it's not whether or not you have a strict understanding and comprehending of the constitution. I mean, we'd all be better off if it were. I mean, if every candidate running for office were forced to take a test about their knowledge and understanding of the Constitution before you run, we'd have better government. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They would understand what they're pledging. Here's a better question. When they when they pledge 
to adhere to the Constitution, how many of those who raise their hand have ever read the Constitution? How many of those understand right. the theory of the Constitution? Maybe you hadn't read it verbatim. Maybe or, you, or how many understand it and don't agree with it and don't like yeah, it well, that, and don't think very that's, interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's obvious some don't. I know. You know. Um, but are you talking about destabilizing the Republican Party or no, destabilizing, destabilizing the government? government? Destabilizing government. Because that's pretty. And that's the dangerous part of this. So, so we're going to basically, I'll give an example. Ramaswamy said he's doing away with the FBI, doing away with the CIA, doing away with the DOJ. What, what do you mean you're doing away with it? You can't do away with the DOJ. That destabilizes all law and order. Can't do away with the FBI. But, I mean, Ramaswamy was, I mean, it, he ran on destabilize. I mean, Trump hadn't said that yet. Ramaswamy basically said, out with the old, in with the new. What do you mean out with the old, in with the new? Out with the DOJ. We'll find a better way to do it. Out with the FBI. Too corrupt. Can't be salvaged. Out with the CIA. Not trustworthy. Too bureaucratic. Too embedded with the Democrats and the careers, the ruling class. I mean, that, that, that is the essence of destabilization. And I think Josh is on to something. I believe that younger people, I think we underestimate some of the younger people's enthusiasm about this destabilizing moment in American history. You and I grew up, Rev, the majority of our lives have been lived with some degree of trust and faith in these institutions. We never believed they were perfect. We knew they got things wrong. We always kind of sort of believed they were a little bit biased. But we didn't believe they needed to be destabilized, abolished, discontinued. I think Josh's generation, I think it was reflected in Ramaswamy. You know, um, yeah, I mean, let's, why can't we do that? Josh has never lived an adult moment of his life where the majority of people trusted what government told them. You and I have lived a lot of our lives. Maybe it was young. Uh, maybe we didn't really have the ability to formulate serious opinions about certain government agencies. But Josh and my kids have never lived a moment when the majority of Americans had any degree of faith in its federal government to do the right thing. I mean, they do things. They do a lot of things, but they don't do the, the right things. And and I want to say, kind of to your point about Ramaswamy, and, you know, you were making the point about uh, Donald Trump's speech uh, after the New Hampshire primary in regards to Nikki Haley and how that turns off independence, and we got to meet, uh, meet politics where it is. And I understand that. Up to a point, because I think that we've gotten to a stage where it's no longer 2008. It's no longer 2010. We have gotten to a point where it's so divisive and it's so divided that at this point, if you're an independent, who cares? You know, like, I think that if in in 2024, if you don't know, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to vote for Trump or I want to vote for Biden. Eh. We don't need you. You're an idiot. and But you're a vote. Unfortunately. You know I mean? And, and that, I get yeah. that. I, I get that. But I think that the, the rhetoric about appealing to independence in of itself is kind of an old, it's kind of outdated. I think. It's a large it, generation. I, I think it, in 2008, because you had a lot of Republicans, you had a lot of traditionally conservative states vote for Barack Obama because they genuinely believed in the kind of change that he was uh, touting. And he didn't really accomplish what he said and ended up ultimately being divisive. But so I think those days you talk about the independence and I get it. But now the the Trump versus Biden dynamic the, I think the number of independents is way less than people think it is. Are they declaring themselves independent because it gives them cover? 
they don't have to verbalize. Yeah. I'm for Biden or I'm oh, for. I mean, I, mean watch, I, I believe that. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people who are going to vote for Biden but won't say it. Yeah, there watch, are a lot of people going to vote for Trump won't say it. Watch any of Joe Rogan's like interviews. They they get off on being like, oh, I I vote for whoever I think is best. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. Joe Rogan is a liberal. He is objectively in every single way a liberal, but he's like, oh, I I disagree with the media, you know. So he comes across as a moderate. He comes across as independent, but he's really not. And I think that's what most independents are these days. And and your generation seems to be willing to go further and faster than our generation is. I mean, I had a conversation with one of my kids. I can't remember. And I did it on purpose. Um, you know, I was talking about Ramaswamy, and I said, I used to going too far too fast. And one of my kids said, eh, for you, maybe. For you, maybe. But, I mean, Dad, you're older. You know what I mean? You, 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 you kind of still I – mean, there's still some respect you give to these government agencies. That would be an interesting number to me. What, what, what percent of people under the age of 30 respect the FBI, the CIA, the DOJ? The State Department. I mean, I, I, that, that would be a very interesting number to me because, Rev, we've had to come to the revelation that the government is not looking after our best interest. I mean, it is us versus them. I told Rev 10 years ago that the eventual massive fight over power in our government will not be conservative or liberal. I mean, I told Rev 10 years you ago. You did. I mean, I said, look, this I was is like, not what? We're, we're heading to a place less about William Buckley. And, and and some of the great liberal thinkers. I mean, it's not about philosophy. It's not about ideology. It's about a universe of people who have amassed enormous control over the government that has enormous control over our lives, and we're going to begin resisting at some point in time. It's going to be us and them. And this is the quintessential us versus them election. And I think Josh is right. A lot of people who verbalize, I'm an independent. I mean, in their heart of hearts, they know if they're on Team Biden or Team Trump. I mean, I think that's baked in the cake already. Um, there are some in swing states that aren't paying close attention that, you know, have been told that, you know, don't be for Biden, don't be for Trump. I mean, I want an alternative. Maybe that's Haley. Maybe that's, you know what I mean? Maybe maybe that's her strategy. Some of those people will fall down the steps and come to their senses and say, wow, I mean, America doesn't want Trump or Biden. They want somebody different, and I'm somebody uniquely different. I don't know that I buy that. I mean, I don't know that I buy that the majority of Americans would not want Biden versus Trump because if we didn't, we'd vote for somebody else. I mean, if the majority of Americans didn't want Biden, there'd be a different Democrat nominee. If the majority of Americans didn't want Trump, there'd be a different Republican um, nominee. But I think Josh nails it. I mean, I think that the people who verbalize, I'm an independent. I'm a free thinker. I mean, I'm not getting in bed with either one of these political parties. I don't like Biden and I don't like Trump. Uh, Maybe you don't. But you've made your mind up. You may not tell anybody, but you've made your mind up which camp you're in. Um, Kahaley always told me that Trump overperforms online polling to 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 cell phone polling by about two or three points. People could not bring themselves to tell another human being that I'm vote for Trump, but they had no trouble mashing the button. I didn't say pressing. Mash it. There's a difference in mash that button. That means you meant it. Pressing that button, eh, anybody can do that. Mashing that button means I really meant it. And Robert always said in the online polling, Trump does three points better. 
I'm not telling this stranger that I'm voting for Trump, but I'll, I'll tell this, you know, indiscreet. I was probably not discreet. You got this cell phone spying on you. Send you a MAGA hat. If you've ever, see, there you go. We're getting, they're reading our minds, guys. <laughs> I just got a popcorn ad. Yeah, I really of did. Of course you did. Yeah. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Ben in Pauly's Island. Good morning, Ben. Hey, good morning, guys. That uh, last segment was packed with a lot of good stuff. Hello? Yes, sir. Yep, you're, you're we on. got you. Oh, okay. I, I can hear something in the background. So, anyway, so that's why I choose to stream you guys versus listening to either of the two shows here at the beach. So, that was a good segment. But, um, couple points. Speaking of Nikki Haley, my wife and I were talking last night, and she is the, the candidate of the Charlie Brown Republican. And if you think about the Charlie Brown, every time he's going to go up and kick that football and boot, he pulls it out from up under him. She is the candidate of the Republicans. I think if we move to the center, if we move to the center, they'll come our way, and they never do. And you look at the case with abortion. There's not a Democrat out there that's going to put any restrictions on abortion, where Republicans have given six weeks, 12 weeks, even further than that, and, and the Democrats just don't move. They're just Charlie Brown Republicans. That's a good analogy. Thank you, sir, for the call. I'll give you an example. Um, probably shouldn't do this, but so what? Uh, I'll blame it on Celsius. I'm <laughs> on my second Celsius. Uh-oh. I'm, um, <laughs> I'm high on the juice this morning that is um, the safest – and and healthiest energy drink there. I don't know if it's an energy drink. It's 200 grams of caffeine. I have to water it down because I'm, I'm too old for that burst of caffeine all at one time. I was talking yesterday with a House member in the General Assembly, and there's a former Democrat gubernatorial candidate seeking a judgeship, and it's beginning to look like he may get one. So stick with me now. Republicans have a supermajority and a former Democrat gubernatorial candidate has done everything required. He's not breaking any laws. He's done everything. He's filed. He's been vetted. I would imagine he's been screened. I mean, I don't know how extensive that is. And it's not a Supreme Court uh, appointment, but it is a, I mean, it's a judge. It's a judgeship in South Carolina. And some of the members of the General Assembly are saying, well, I mean, you know, 40% of the state, 42% of the state are Democrats. Should every judge in South Carolina be a Republican? Yes. Yes. Because of what the caller just said. They're not going to meet you in the middle. They're just not going to meet you in the middle. That There is no interest in compromising. They will compromise or they'll, they'll, they'll disguise themselves as pragmatists and compromisers when they're forced. And, and I'm sorry. I wish it weren't that way. I wish America had two functioning parties that genuinely respected one another and found some common ground. But where's the common ground when one political party, as part of its agenda, I mean, this is not me making it up, it's on their agenda, believes that an abortion should be allowed to be performed in the third trimester. And, a, I mean, you got the majority of Democrats ascribed to the notions of socialism. I mean, where's the compromise there? I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's legitimate to compromise on the, the highest marginal tax rate. I mean, there's a genuine compromise on, you know, how much deficit spending we're allowing or not. I mean, I would expect the liberals would have a higher number than the, than the Republicans. That's the philosophical divide. Government needs more money to do more wonderful things. Government needs less money to make sure it doesn't do 
these wonderful things. That's the yin and yang that Hamiltonian, Jeffersonian was about. But it's morphed into something completely and totally different. I mean, it's not just the government. It's the, uh, you know, the, 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 the morality arbiter, the equality arbiter, the ethics arbiter. I mean, the government has morphed into this huge monstrosity that controls the majority of our lives. And if that's the case, then Republicans should have their way. But if we're not in a, in a state of compromise, I'll give an example. Here's the greatest example of the, the disinterest in compromising. Nancy Pelosi chaired a, or excuse me, appointed members to a J6 commission. Nancy Pelosi didn't let the Republicans put on the commission who they chose to. But that's the end of compromise. Why do you ever believe that Lucy's going to let you kick the football? She's not, you'll never kick that football as long as she's holding the football. Charlie Brown will bust his ass every single time. And that's what the caller is arguing. So I understand that 45% of the state are Democrats, 42, whatever the number is. I get that. And, and, and the judiciary should represent the state in total. I mean, you shouldn't have, in, under good circumstances, we shouldn't have every judge on the bench a Republican a conservative, uh, you know, a body of the Constitution. You should have that. But but because of where we find ourselves, there is no way. There is no way. I couldn't, one man can't stop it, but there's no way that I would ever vote for a Democrat gubernatorial candidate seeking a judgeship in South Carolina with a supermajority. I just I couldn't do it. I feel like I'm letting my team down if I go down that road. Once again, hypothetically, Theoretically, that's the right way for government to function. But government doesn't function that way. And when the Democrats get a chance to kick you in the you-know-what, they do it. And, and Republicans have played nice for a long, 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 long time, and it's gotten them nowhere. Let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan, good morning. Yes, guys. Uh, what you just said, Republicans are traditionally just roll over, take it, and claim to be gentlemen. Uh, what has happened is three-quarters of our federal government, uh, the, the Congress, the executive branches, uh, the agencies, all are corrupt now. And I was thinking about that a while ago when you were talking to the two guys about AI. Uh, as you well know, or I don't know whether you know or not, Blinken, who uh, now has a job in Biden's administration, was over the think tank that was built at Penn State that housed classified documents that were being held there by a vice president and China was the one who funded that building and poured money into Penn State. That was one of four locations for classified documents. But that's not all. While Bill Barr was DOJ, he actually took a petition up from Penn State and counseled the espionage investigation into China. So 
what has happened is there was a bloodless coup against Trump from day one. And not only were the Democrats involved, but a lot of Republicans and most of the agencies in the federal government were participants in that. Uh, also, I would like you to ask uh, Representative Fry when he comes on tomorrow, why haven't they interviewed Bill Barr about what he did about the laptop when he did not make it public that that was authentic because he was head of the DOJ when that was happening. He also was head of the DOJ when $3 million and the FBI agents went to Twitter. And we don't know how much money they infused in Facebook, but we do know that they took $3 million of our taxpayers' dollars and paid Twitter to not allow any derogatory things about the laptop. Also, Bill Barr was head of the DOJ when hundreds upon hundreds of affidavits were turned in in 2020, and people swore with the threat of being jailed about the abnormalities. And then Bill Barr gets up on television and says it was a very, very uh, great election. There was no fraud. So I want you to ask uh, Mr. Fry when they're going to pull Bill Barr in there and make him account for what he did when he was DOJ. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Barr's been kind of a mixed bag. I mean, at times he seems to be ah, sympathetic to Trump's cause of trying to, I don't know, uh, an outsider comes to Washington, so to speak. You know, it's kind of an interesting, my concern is this. Um, well, I got a lot of concerns. The, the biggest concern I have with Trump's reelection, I mean, let, let's let's assume he gets reelected. That's wild, but let's assume <laughs> that. I mean, he wins in sixteen, loses twenty, wins again in twenty four. Um, does he have time? I mean, he has a better understanding. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He doesn't hire some of the uh, same people he hired because really and truly, he hired kind of sort of the same the same cast of characters you would expect a Bush or someone um, to hire. Can he find the people who can press the accelerator and make monumental change in Washington in four years? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not there. It seems to me it's turning a tanker. You know, you've, you've got this, this monster of a machine, and it goes this way, and all of a sudden an outsider shows up with a better understanding of that monster of a machine. Trump may not say this publicly, but I've heard that privately he'll admit he underestimated the enormity of the machine. I mean, he knew the government was bigger than Trump Enterprises. But I, and I've said this a hundred times, I just think Donald Trump believed that as president, it was similar to being CEO of Trump Enterprise. And every deal comes across my desk. I mean, there's no way that they'll do these major projects. I mean, they've got to talk to me about it. i got to sign the purchase order. You know, I got to call the bank. I mean, I got, I'll, I'll, I'll be well aware. And I don't think he had any understanding or comprehension as to how much could get done without his authorization and without his knowledge. And probably no comprehension that certain people in certain agencies could actually work against him. But they were. 
Oh, my gosh. And, and, and we know they Come were. Come to find out. Now, now, how much better would he be at it this time? And, you know, not, not just being a change agent, but putting change agents in particular important positions within within the government. I don't have any idea. I mean, I don't know what you can get done. Let's hypothetically say he makes DeSantis um, attorney general, and he puts Ramaswamy in charge of the FBI. I mean, I'm just hypothetical. I don't, I don't have any idea what the qualifications need to be for that or not. Um, I mean, how long does it take Ramaswamy to change the culture of the FBI? How long does it take Ron DeSantis to change the culture of the DOJ? Uh, do they wait him out? I mean, do, do people at the FBI have the ability to say, well, I mean, he's only going to be here four years. I mean, give him lip service, say yes, sir, no, sir, um, and then we'll kind of move along back to business as usual. That's why I'm more interested in America first. I mean, Trump is our guy. I mean, he's my guy. He's the majority of your guy. The polls show that clearly amongst Republicans. He is by far the favored candidate. But I'd like to see polling on America first, post-Trump. Here's an interesting, I mean, if, if Kahaley would do this, what if Robert polled and asked America firsters, people who identify as America firsters, who would you like to see Trump pass the baton to? I mean, do, 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 you, do you give them five names or do you let them come up with the names? That's, that's an important question to me because I just don't know what you could do in four years. You're not, talking about, <laughs> you're not talking about changing a family business. I mean, you're talking about True. the biggest monster human beings have ever known, and, and you're going to try to reform it and change it and resituate it and reorient it. That's a task. I mean, that's a huge and monumental endeavor. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Mike in Darlington. Hello, you're on. Hey there. I could hear that peaches and herb in the background. <laughs> that goes back a few years. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, uh, I, I think your show should be required listening. You know, throughout the state, possibly the whole uh, nation for at least an hour a day. And I think people get a little more educated. You've really, uh, I'm for that. I, 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 I'm, I, I'm for that form of communism. Count me in. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> but, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, well, uh, who heads up the FBI and who doesn't, you know, those are important decisions, but it's not going to rate, make a rats behind about all of these grand strategies. If we don't get our stuff together, to win this election coming up and it's and we're in the middle of the election and if one thing Haley has shown me she's uh, just a distraction out there and she's a I don't think she could stand one tenth of the scrutiny that uh has been uh that's been applied to Trump and I I just uh, she's a flat-footed puncher. She's not on her toes. She's not stepping into the punch. She is is just um, it, it's like she doesn't. She just doesn't have the toughness that it takes to uh, do the job that's ahead. And uh, Trump needs to get behind her, ignore her, or whatever needs to be done and start concentrating on what needs to be done to win these uh, swing states to make sure they're in the corner, whether they, uh, if it's getting together our own uh, motor voter and uh, and uh, 
and we get our mail-in ballots, get those done in those states where it needs to be done. But we we really have to win the election first, and then we can decide who's going to run what and what we're going to do. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. In, in a weird way, Nikki has enjoyed the benefits of Barack Obama. Okay, explain that. Uh, hands off her. Ah, she's different. Hands off her. She's a female. She's an Indian. She seems to be moderate. Um, j- just let's handle her with rubber gloves. Um, I'm not, I mean, we didn't vet Obama. We, we just didn't. I mean, America chose that there, there were, here, here's a unique guy at a point in time in our history when we want to let bygones be bygones and prove to ourselves, I guess, but I don't think we're proving anything to the world, proved ourselves that we weren't a racist nation. I mean, there were a lot of people who voted based on, I want to prove to myself, and I want the world to know that America's not a racist nation. I know we had a civil war and a, we had slavery and transatlantic slavery was a big part of our, our existence and our, our early economies, but, but I want to make sure the world knows that we're not a racist nation. And we said, but, but is he qualified? Don't care. Does he know what he's doing? Don't care. Is he conservative or liberal? Don't care. What do you mean you don't care? I don't care. I don't care. I think many Republicans saw Nikki as different. But does she know what she's doing? Don't care. We need, we need more diversity. We need more females, more minorities. But, but is, she, is she capable of doing the job? Don't care. And I think at, at every turn, Nikki has been handled with rubber gloves. I mean, I saw some of that in 2010. I mean, they'd bust Henry in the mouth. They'd bust Andre in the mouth. They'd bust, you know, Gresham in the mouth. And they'd hit Nikki with a feather. <laughs> and, and I, you know, if you believe that she's the nominee, they're going to hit her with a feather, you're crazy. Now, but they, they will try to destroy her if she becomes the Republican nominee for president. They will bring up the allegations of affairs and, and Wilbur Smith and Lexington Medical Center. That's right. But there's some stories out there that aren't being heavily reported. I'm familiar and a lot of you are familiar. Most of you probably aren't. But, I mean, there's a lot of questions with Wilbur Smith and with Lexington Medical Center and with, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I don't want to get into private lives. But, anyway, th- there's, some, there's some scrutiny there that she'll have to endure if she is indeed the nominee. But I think the, the party has looked at her as somewhat of a um, kind of a celebration of here's what we need. I mean, we need somebody younger. We need somebody that's not old, stale, pale, and male as I like to say, and I'm for that. I mean, I want to be diverse. I want to be inclusive. I want to have all sorts of people, but but I want to be capable and believe fundamentally in what we believe in. And and I think once you garner the nomination, they're not going to give you a pass any longer. I mean, the media wants Democrats to win. Those who write history want Democrats to win. I mean, they're liberal by and large. I didn't say they're a monolith, but they're damn close. I mean, they're almost a monolith. So when Haley gets the nomination, she's going to be unbelievably vetted. as She's never been vetted before, and people are going to find out things about her that insiders kind of sort of know, but the rest of America um, does not. It comes down to this for me, and I tried to argue this earlier. I think the best message for Donald Trump right now is I am an uncontrollable candidate. Nobody will ever tell me what to do. I just think that is, it's simple, it's understandable, it's, um, it's, it's, it's contrast with Nikki and with Biden, and I would, I would talk about Nikki. I mean, do you really believe that when Ken Langone, Stanley Drunkenmiller, 
uh, you know, all these big donors, all these heavy hitters, do you believe that by them funding her campaign, she will ever tell them no to some of the Wall Street friendly legislation, some of the hedge fund friendly legislation, some of the um some of the globalist friendly legislation, some of the military industrial friendly combination. She's going to be beholden to them. And I'm not going to be beholden to anybody. I just think that's his message. I mean, it is make America great again. I mean, he's the original voice of that. Uh, but but I still believe that right now at this moment in time, I mean, if he comes to South Carolina, I would imagine he will. Uh, something tells me Trump wants to just, just run away with South Carolina. I mean, she's kind of issued a challenge. She's basically said, I'm not going anywhere. I mean, this is my state, and, and I'll prove to you this is my state. The people will come to their senses. Uh, I know what they're saying now, but I can convince them in three weeks to come back home and support a, uh, a fellow South Carolinian. I don't think the Republican primary voter will buy that, uh, but it'll be interesting to watch Trump's strategy. Um, I mean, Nikki's already trying to say that she's the choice of the establishment. Well, in South Carolina, she kind of is. Henry and Lindsey and, you know, some of these others. I think Ralph Norman, as far as I know, is the only Washington politician to endorse Nikki Haley. And they go back to, I think, 04 or 06 when they went to the South Carolina General Assembly together. Uh, I, I, just, I just think it's control. I think the American public today believe that the billionaires and gazillionaires and American oligarchs control the government, but they can't control Trump. They can't tell him what to do. I think that message resonates across socioeconomic bounds, across race. I mean, you know, black voters, white voters, Hispanic voters, women voters, men voters. I think when they're given the opportunity to vote for someone that they believe the the billionaires can't control or somebody they believe the billionaires can, they're going to about almost every time choose the billion, excuse me, choose the one that the billionaires can't control. And I think that message works with Biden. I mean, you, you want to get real hardcore? I think you can. I mean, what, what have I asked over the years? How did Biden get rich? Right. I mean, I think you can ask that of Nikki. I mean, Governor Haley, you were nearly bankrupt when you left South Carolina. How did you get wealthy? Tell me about the $2 million home in Kiowa. I mean, I just think that's, that's, that's rough and tumble politics, but welcome to South Carolina. If you aren't willing to taste your own blood, you better not run for president in a South Carolina primary. Period. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.